Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 97 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane. The other voice you will hear that you hear on every episode is Matt Feuerstein. But today you will hear one more voice, and it's a voice you have never heard on Through the Years before, and it is long overdue. So I've t- long-time listeners will know I've told this anecdote a couple times before, but you're going to hear it again one more time because this is the most appropriate place finally to tell this anecdote and i've already told it a couple times but the origin of this show was matt and i were friends back when we were online friends back when we were knee high to grasshoppers as the old folks might say um we just i was i was i was about one inch shorter than i am now (laughs) when we first started chatting online <laughs> so okay, when we were younger, that's but when we were teenagers, um, and then years and years later, Matt starts a podcast, List Them and Learn, which was a great show. He invites me on, we do an episode. He invites me on again to do a Ring of Honor episode, and right after that episode's done recording, Matt uh, messages me and it's like, you know, maybe we should try and do like a, uh, a podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, um, you know, like from the start. And he then he referenced a show that we were mutual fans of called Where the Big Boys Play, which was a show that reviewed uh, WCW show by show from the beginning. Not every TV show, obviously, but every pay-per-view and clash. And I think they got up to 1993. There's a whole bunch of episodes out there on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. You have to search. It's getting harder to find them, unfortunately. I'm going to say they got up to 1994, but we'll let our guests confirm. Um, I, I th- we'll see, Matt. We'll see. I, I would bet a little money on this one. but All right, fair enough. Uh I remember, um, and that was kind of like just the idea of if we could have as much fun as those guys seem to be having and come as like half as good as those, as fun as that show was, we'd be doing good. And then when we were plugging the show, one of the first people that ever sent us a uh, positive feedback on a message board was one of the two hosts of the show, our guest today, a person who, by the way, did not know either of us from Adam. So just like probably one, maybe the first person that did not actually know us to praise the show. He got us on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which we remain to this day. You might know him from his great post on the Pro Wrestling Only message board as Soup23, I believe is his username. So many good um posts. Like anytime I want to re- read a good review of a match, like – they have a whole section on the ProWrestlingOnly.com forum where it's just like a whole forum devoted to like segments of matches and, and interview segments from wrestling history dated by year. And I always a lot of times go, I wonder if our guest today has like said something about it because I just want to read whatever he has to think because I just think he's one of the most interesting, well-versed people on wrestling. You might know him from Where the Big Boys Play. You might know him today from Wrestling Warzone, The Monday Night Wars, which is a podcast he does with JT Rosero, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is covering the Monday Night Wars of the 90s, Raw and Nitro. Long, long, long overdue, which is why I gave him a long introduction, because this is what I can best describe as a guilt introduction. Chad Campbell, one of the best wrestling podcasters out there. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, wow. <laughs> what an intro. I, can't, I don't know if I can follow that, but uh, no, I'm very appreciative. And um, yeah, when I when I first saw that there was a retrospective Ring of Honor podcast, it uh piqued my interest and i'd heard matt uh do the audio of kind of the top 50 roh wrestlers and i enjoyed that and i remembered him from way back in the joe gagney days but uh no i thought i thought the podcast was a great idea and i'm glad to see that uh you two over the last 
few years have uh, seen it through, and now we're really into the golden era of Ring of Honor. So it's uh, been a, a great ride listening to uh, each and every episode. And, and I'll you. and I'll just say, um, well, thank you first of all. And I'll just say, um, there were probably two people that were most responsible for anyone besides like just us um, caring about this podcast and. Uh, Trevor, you and I are not the two people. It is um, – one would be the Cubs fan, um, which, you know, I don't think – you know, I don't know if he would ever um, um, uh, be uh, so kind as to come on the show. But uh, the other person is definitely Chad. Um, like you said, like he just – he plucked us out of the blue and, and got us on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which we're still on. And, you know, we were so honored to be even asked – and it's uh, yeah, it was amazing. And I, you know, I've been a big fan of Chad of, of yours for a really long time. And by the way, was it ninety three or ninety four? When did you get up to it oh, with Big Boys Play? Yeah. So uh, Trevor was correct. Our Woo-hoo. last our last episode was the Clash of the Champions. Uh, right before Beach Blast, nineteen ninety three. All right. Well, I'm glad. It. I'm glad I didn't bet. I, yeah, I remember because <laughs> I was so sad because I was like. When I started finally in my family, like when my family finally was willing to get TBS was 1994. So when you were about to hit like the Trevor game, little boy nostalgia period. And I was like, God damn, we came so close, but <laughs> still so many good episodes. And obviously that's the worst time. Well, no, the first half of 94 is good WCW, but then it just basically becomes, I, my, my parents got me like W. I was a lifelong WWF fan, and my parents got me WCW finally, right as it became a poor imitation of the WWF I had just grown up with. So that was a fun time. Yeah, and you, that show was really a template for this one in a lot of ways. Besides just the show by show reviews, you also did the um, you went through the uh, Wrestling Observers and and torches and stuff, and talked about the current events going on surrounding the shows, which is something that obviously Trevor does a, a really good job doing now. Um, I say Trevor because I really don't do any of that at all. But um, okay. I um, and and by the way, um, had they already started the thing? Because I tweeted about this recently. Because I, I was just watching Slamboree '94, and I I noticed this, and it was something I remembered, and it was a pet peeve of mine about WCW when they had like this really intense brawl with. Uh, Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan against the Nasty Boys. The announcers were just like laughing the whole time. They were just like, Haha, "This is ridiculous. This, you know, <laughs> these guys are too much." But they already started doing that by '93 because I feel like in the gym, when Jim Ross was on commentary, he did not do that. He treated the matches seriously. Well, wasn't that like a famous complaint in McFoley's first biography where he was like, you know? Doing those 93 matches where he let Vader just brutalize him and Tony Schiavone was like, you know, that's Excedrin headache number. Like, I, I think Foley literally, like, called people out in his book for that. Like, yeah, and, but but it wasn't just, like, ma- you know, making, like, unserious comments. Like, Jesse Ventura and Tony were on commentary, and they were just, like, straight up, like, cracking up. Like, they were just, like, <laughs> laughing. Like, it was a comedy match. Like, it was crazy. And these guys were, like, taking, like, big-time shots to the head. Yeah, I think that's more of a, a Jesse Tony kind of their rapport thing because, uh, Raw certainly, uh, I mean, you know, like in the, in the 91, 92, really the brawls that you think about do involve fully, um, like versus Sting, but, um, he, he took those fairly seriously. So, and, and really helped to get fully over, I thought. So, yeah. so I, I think that's just Jesse and Tony. Uh, they always had like a joking back and forth. I, I mean, maybe it's because, uh, 
Jesse and Ross didn't like each other at all, so he was happy to work with Tony, but it, it could put a damper on some of the serious brawls for sure. Yeah, and then later on, Dusty did the same thing, so it would, oh, be, well. it, it would be a trend until the end of WCW, but hey, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about a company that had very good commentary since the beginning, right, Trevor? <laughs> And well, that, that's that, that's a nice transition. We should cover today's show. That is Dragon Gate Challenge. We are dead in the middle of the Milestone series, which was a string of seven shows. This is the fourth, so we're right in the the absolute center of it. Dragon Gate Challenge took place March thirtieth, two thousand six, at the Michigan State Fairgrounds and Expo Center in Detroit, Michigan, in front of a reported crowd of five hundred and fifty fans. So this was start the start of. Ring of Honor's, you know, big first ever triple shot. You know, the next two nights they'd be in Chicago, which was the site of that year's WrestleMania. Um, Dave Meltzer found a way to what would end up being one of the most successful weekends of this entire era of Ring of Honor, found a way to kind of be negative on it because he wrote in The Observer at the time. The big weekend began with a hot show on uh, March 30th in Detroit before 550 fans, which is more than they were expecting for a Thursday night show. And like Trevor, side note, yeah, that's the other thing we should mention this because it was a triple shot. This was a rare Thursday night Ring of Honor show. Usually they ran, you know, Friday, Saturday. Dave continues, still, it does show a TNA versus Ring of Honor comparison as the TNA show, with much more advertising, it should be noted, did 3,170 people paid two weeks earlier, and that's with TNA never even once mentioning or plugging the show on their own TV since they sold the show and weren't going to financially benefit by any extra tickets sold. So... I mean, I don't know if, if the TNA show, I mean, first off, that has to be one of the higher, like, TNA's all-time record attendance, I don't think is too much higher than that, like, probably a couple thousand, like, but, yeah, this was a time where TNA was ascendant and uh, doing well, and yeah, there was a difference between the two companies, but this was still, you know, 550 on a lot of nights would be a good Ring of Honor crowd during this era on a Friday or Saturday, depending on the market, and this was on a Thursday, so not bad. And- yeah, I mean, it's not like Ring of Honor was a smaller promotion than TNA yeah. at this point, so it's like I don't know if that's the standard you should hold it to, but you know, like TNA had pay per views and weekly TV, and you know what I mean? Like, it's not, I don't think it's a fair comparison. Like, eventually, I think that in some people's minds, ROH overtook TNA as the number two company, but it wasn't in. 2006. Mm-hmm. And then we go to the observer for one more quote. And I love this quote because it's, uh, I think I mentioned this on Twitter months ago, but this is because I couldn't hold it back for the, even though I knew I was going to use it for this show, but it shows you, it is delightfully quaint in today's wrestling world. It shows you how much things have changed. Dave wrote, to show how crazy WrestleMania weekend will be in Chicago, this is the schedule of things going on besides the Hall of Fame, Mania, and the WrestleMania brunch WWE is putting on. Of course, Ring of Honor has shows on both um, March 31st and April 1st. IWA Mid-South has an afternoon show on April 1st in nearby Midlothian, Illinois. There are also rumors of a new MMA group called the IFL, which is the team versus team concept we've written about. And they're looking at April 1st in Chicago for its first TV taping. And that is it. That was what Dave thought was a crazy WrestleMania weekend, you know, in 2006, which I think I guess shows you that, like, this was not the first weekend that Ring of Honor ever piggybacked on WrestleMania. This is probably certainly they probably were not the first company in wrestling history to ever run a local indie show 
around WrestleMania. But I feel like this was kind of the weekend maybe where after the next two shows in Chicago where it kind of started to really cement the idea of, of long more than Ring of Honor that like, hey, you know, following WrestleMania around and kind of making this like a destination weekend and what's now become basically kind of a destination week is a good idea. It's, you know, it's delightfully just cute that uh, uh, two indie shows and maybe a possible MMA show back in 2006 was considered a crazy WrestleMania weekend. Well, I mean, think about, I mean, have you ever been to one of those WrestleMania brunches? Those things get pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> but, um, the, the one other, the one notable thing about this, I think, um, as far as this being the beginning of the WrestleMania weekend indie tradition, this was the last WrestleMania. This was 2006. This was WrestleMania 22. This was the last WrestleMania to be held in an arena. Like, ever. There, after this, there was never another WrestleMania held in an arena. There was one WrestleMania that was held in a performance center, but there's never been a WrestleMania <laughs> held in an arena after this. Every other one was held in a big stadium, which meant, like, many thousands more people coming into the city um, for these indies to piggyback off, off of WWE Force. So, it's kind of... Like it's kind of fitting that this was a little bit smaller, a little bit more quaint than the ones that would um, pr- that would um, come after it. Yeah, um, it, it's it's interesting yeah, that we were also yeah that goes hand in hand with that. I guess the idea of WrestleMania transitioning from just you know the biggest show we're putting on each year to kind of like this is a show so big. It's almost like the Olympics where cities are now fighting to be awarded it. You know, it's, there's an expectation that it will bring tourism dollars because a significant number of people will travel from around the world just to come here, which is again, which is those are the, the kind of audience you need to make. Like a, I think a local indie w- scene have a whole week around it because to have that many people that may decide to show up a few days early, they have nothing to do or at least nothing wrestling related to do until the, you know, the day of and. Places like Ring of Honor took advantage of that. But, and then last little note, uh, Scott Diamore was backstage of the show, obviously of TNA, local guy from Michigan. So that brings us to the show. There was two matches we did not get to see as usual, dark matches. There was a dark four corner survival match where Mitch Franklin beat Bobby Dempsey, Derek Dempsey, and Smash Bradley. And then there was a rare dark tag team women's match. Lacey and Tiana Ringer defeated Allison Danger and Chantel Taylor. And that brings us to the show proper. We open as normal for the Milestone series, picking up where the last show ended. In this case, with the embassy of Alex Shelley, Jimmy Rave, and Prince Nana arguing. Uh, Nana tries to get them to stop fighting, threatening to stop giving them money if they don't. He says all they need to worry about is winning the Ring of Honor tag team titles. And he pressures them to shake hands after some cajoling. They, they do shake hands. So... Matt, this was probably like the weakest cliffhanger resolution in the Milestone series where like... The end of the last show was like, the, you know, for those who haven't been following, like the Milestone series as a special little difference on these shows they had. So every show would end with like kind of a to be continued cliffhanger. And the cliffhanger to this one, to the last show was the middle of the of the embassy fighting. And the cliffhanger res- resolution is literally just they make up. Literally all of these cliffhangers were kind of contrived and forced even like like i say the most dramatic one was the one between arena warfare and best in the world with bj whitmer getting beaten up in the uh, you know in the ecw arena but he had already been beaten up in the ecw arena like at the end of arena warfare the beginning of best in the world was just like zandig cutting a promo so no, like i i think it was cute that they tried the whole uh, to be continued thing but none of them were that interesting 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then next we find Lacey and Jimmy Jacobs somewhere else backstage. Lacey tells Jimmy that this is a really important night for for him because he's going to get to get his revenge on BJ Whitmer. Uh, Jimmy shyly asks Lacey if she went on ROHvideos.com and saw the video of the song he wrote for her, which, of course, is the ballad of Lacey that we were talking about on a recent show. Lacey just ignores that. She uh, tells Jimmy she doesn't care if he wins tonight. She just wants him to hurt Whitmer. And if he does, he might get a little reward. Jimmy asks, well, well what kind of reward? And Lacey says, well, what do you want? And Jimmy says, well, could I take off your shoes and socks and give you a foot rub after the match? And then Lacey reacts with this kind of, that's all you want, really, like, kind of reaction. But says, uh, sure, uh, if you beat up Whitmer tonight, okay. And at this point, Jimmy gets really excited, says Whitmer is a dead man tonight. So the, my one takeaway from this promo is uh, Jimmy Jacobs has a lot in common with Bob Odenkirk. The other takeaway that I have of this um, promo is this really was – she was right. This really was an important night for Jimmy Jacobs, but not for the reason that she said. And by the way, just uh, uh, something related to Jimmy Jacobs and the Ballad of Lacey. On the last show, we talked about the lyric where he was like, I'm – you know, um, you're the American beauty and I'm Kevin Spacey. And we talked about how out of date and how much that, that line doesn't hold up anymore. But <laughs> yeah. there was a thing about a year ago where – uh, Jacob sang the Ballad of Lacey to Lacey in a, at an indie show. I don't remember what the show was, but he updated the lyric. He like changed, he got rid of this Kevin Spacey thing and said something about Dawson's Creek and Pacey. So I think he <laughs> he knew how problematic the Kevin Spacey line was too. Yeah, uh, Kevin Spacey takes on a different connotation in uh, 2021. So uh, absolutely. And that brings us to the top five. We get Samoa Joe, Alex Shelley, Christopher Daniels, Jimmy Yang, Roderick Strong, number one. Same top five we've had on recent shows. And then we cut to the ring where Bobby Cruz welcomes us to another show in the Milestone series featuring Dragon Gate in a series of matches against Ring of Honor when Colt Cabana walks to the ring and interrupts Bobby. Colt grabs the mic and puts over how good the show is is going to be, but says there's one match that can't wait any longer. Colt points out that the last time they were here, Colt superplexed Homicide through a table, and the match was not able to continue after that point. Colt says, tonight the match will continue. It's going to be false count anywhere. He wants it right now. Out comes Homicide. False count anywhere matches our opener. Homicide defeats Colt Cabana via pinfall in 5 minutes, 23 seconds, after he puts Cabana's head in the middle of a closed ladder, hits it with a chair, then covers him for the pin. Uh, Chad, like... This is uh this is definitely one of the slightest of their matches I would say. What do you think about I guess I mean it's it's hard to throw this to you cuz it's not a ton to work with. But what did you think about this? Yeah, so I I haven't I've been listening along, but I haven't been watching along. So I don't think I'd seen this show since I first got the DVD. So I I'm pretty sure it'd been what 16 years since I'd watched this show. Um, as far as, and it is weird coming into a show like this, which you said was dead in the middle of the milestone series. And then also kind of in the middle of this huge, uh, blood feud between Colt and homicide. But, uh, I, I did like the brawl for what it was. Uh, there was a couple of, uh, things that I noticed one, given where we are in 2022, 
there were some chairs that were thrown in this match, and I don't think I could ever watch those in the same way again, especially if they involve somebody like Cole Cabana or a still CM Punk or anybody of <laughs> oh, that. So, so. Well, Chad addressed the elephant in the room. We weren't going to, but Chad did. <laughs> well, there was that. Just, uh, you know, it was a little fresh in the mind when they started hurling chairs at Colt. Uh, but, um, no, I mean, as, as far as a brawl, it was, it was, uh, looked out of control. It was one of those things. I know, I know, I think once you're kind of removed from it, you get a little desensitized, but, uh, in this kind of day and age where, you know, there's tons of indies that are filmed on IWTV and whatnot. And generally the camera work and lighting is good enough to follow the action. It was, uh, kind of strange to go back to 2006 when they were brawling in the crowd and it was a little tough to follow, uh, what was going on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as, as far as a, Quick brawl, I thought it was entertaining. Some nasty shots, including the final uh, kind of knockout blow, I thought was uh, real brutal. And, and I thought it did a good job in kind of setting the stage uh, for the remainder of the weekend for the feud. Because, I mean, they kind of presented it as, oh, this was going to be the final conclusion. But the way it ended up, uh, you know, if you're a viewer, you know, that's probably not going to be the case. Uh, Matt, I want your thoughts. So also, the very end of the match... Um where uh, Colt has his head sandwiched in the ladder and he gets hit with the with the chair. Uh, the Observer wrote that after the show um, that Colt Cabana suffered a both a broken nose and a deep bruise on his cheek after a DDT on a ladder in Detroit, but he worked the rest of the weekend. Um, I, I know um, I was listening to our friends at an honorable mention, their episode on this, and they when um, someone wrote in to ask, like, was Colt hurt on the show? Uh, Shane Hagador, who obviously worked the show, just said, uh, kayfabe. And, um, I'm wondering, like, did, I didn't think it would seem that, like, I didn't notice any severe injury, but maybe there was, but I'm wondering if this was an example of actually Ring of Honor fooling the newsletters as would occasionally happen. So, what'd you think about the match? And did you catch, did, did you think watching that, that, wow, this is ultra, like, someone just got hurt there? No, but I, um, I think someone could easily have gotten hurt at that spot, yeah. you know, where there's a head of sandwich in a ladder. But, you know, if Shane says it's kayfabe, I tend to believe him. So that's was will be like that's well, what I settle on. Word kayfabe, so maybe that just means he's going to keep mum on it. Who knows? maybe it was real, but they don't want to tell you how real, Matt. Maybe it was too real. I'm going to take it to mean that it was not real. <laughs> that's usually what kayfabe means. Um, but um, as far as uh, I, I agree with a, like pretty much all of what Chad said, but I'll add just as someone who you know we do watch all these shows, there's a monotony to the format of these shows, and usually when something breaks the pattern. Um, and breaks the formula, eh, I like it. And this did that, you know, instead of having the undercard matches starting slow, you know, or just like a short, you know, unimportant match, they start with a, sh- you know, I mean, this match was really just an angle, you know, it really wasn't a match, but it was good. Like, I, as far as what it was, it was a good angle, you know, it wasn't like a good match in the sense of it's going to get a high star rating or anything, but it was exciting. It was five minutes. It kept the story going. It was, it brought, it kept the crowd hot. Um, you know, it was the usual thing where 
they fight in the crowd and it's dark and the spotlight really can't find them half the time. And it played off of the last show in uh, Detroit and I guess it would have been, what, November, where they were fighting in the crowd and Homicide did the – or one of them did the suplex off the bleachers. I don't even remember which is which at this point. But um, they even fight on the bleachers. And then they have that big move at the end where, I mean, it is crazy when someone puts someone's head in between a ladder and hits it with a chair. That, you know, is it makes it plausible that the match would have to end right there. So, you know, I, I do think it's kind of silly when they're like, okay, now the feud's over because I've done that a few times and obviously that's never happened. Um, but no, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, th- I think the other thing is it, it everything feels so like, um, accelerated where it's like they have this big angle where Colt's like head is all messed up and then they end up having this big blow off match two nights later but then I was like you know what that's not so different than shooting an angle on Smackdown or Rampage and having the big match on the pay-per-view so I guess that's fair enough um, but no I I liked it a lot yeah uh, I like this uh, less than you guys I, I just feel like at this point we had seen so much brutality and like lengthier, more meaty matches. This just felt kind of like a, a lesser kind of revisiting of things just to kind of extend this out over the course of a triple shot. And like, like Chad acknowledged, um, yeah, indies, especially back then, had a hard time following the, uh, the action. There, there was a part of this match where I felt so bad for whoever was running the spotlight, because a lot of times when you see crowd brawling, you can see, like, the spotlight's just kind of behind as, as they move. There was a, there's a, like, a, a wide, like, hard camera shot during this brawl where you see, like, the spotlight is just, like, frantically darting all over everywhere. Like, the guy's just going, <laughs> where are they? Where are they? Like, he's just, he has no idea. I just felt so bad for whoever was running it. Like, and, um, I did like that they, you know, fought all the way back to the bleachers and they kind of teased that maybe that they were going to, you know, repeat the big move off the bleachers like they did last time there, but they didn't really do anything. Um, you know, the latter thing at the end was, you know, memorable, but overall, I, like you said, though, Matt, I do agree that anytime you break up like the flow of a show, if you just change the format that, you know, you can't do it all the time, but it's refreshing when they do that. So I appreciate that. And then, um. After the match, Prazak in that very Gabian must have, I'm sure he was coached by Gabe to put it this way, kind of commentary. Hard sell said, the feud is over. Homicide has won the feud. Cabana will now never have peace. I I love, I love the word Gaby. I feel like. (laughs) The Gabian. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Smokes, hugs, homicide, they happily celebrate, and both of them literally are shouting, like, it's over, it's over, so classic Ring of Honor, ultra-telegraph, like, what's going to happen by acting so hard in the opposite direction, um, you know what's coming next. But We should write a book on the Gabian theory of wrestling booking. <laughs> or or, should, or would it be the Sapolskyan theory? Which sounds better? Um, I was thinking Boward. <laughs> the Boward, the Boward school method. of commentary. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then next we go to Dragon Gate's do-fixer stable of Dragon Kid, Ryo Saito, and Genki Horiguchi backstage. They take turns each saying a few words of the following sentence in English. In Japan, do-fixer fights everyone's challenges. Tonight, we're here to fight you. So just a quick, very, you know, I mean, that's it. That's the entire promo. This was, this was nothing, but I liked it a lot. Like, yeah. I feel like when, like, when AEW brings in Japanese stars, they should do something like this. Like, just have them say, like, a sentence backstage. Like, it just, it gets over the, it just gets them over just, like, that little tiny bit more. It's tiny, but I think it's significant. 
yeah, like uh, Takashita should have had some more, like just a promo about how much he loves cinnamon. You know, mm-hmm. that that would, I mean, as as well as his run in in AEW was, that would take it one more level, I would say. Um, and then we cut to Christopher Daniels and Allison Danger somewhere else backstage. Daniels says Samoa Joe has always been more trouble than he's worth. Daniels he goes over their history in Ring of Honor, how he brought Joe in as to be the hired hitman of the prophecy way back in 2002, only for Joe to eventually turn on him. Daniels says he has tr- then tried to stop Joe, but at every turn Joe has put his shoulders to the mat. Daniels says at the recent Midwest double shot, he was supposed it was supposed to end between the two of them, but fate stepped in and those matches didn't happen, obviously because uh, Joe was hurt at that time. So tonight instead instead is their last scheduled singles match match against each other we will go to the context of that quote later which daniel says is his last chance to redeem himself and earn his respect from joe he says he'll beat joe tonight and earn that respect and maybe he'll even shake his hand i should note that during this entire promo allison danger was making some great goofy over-the-top shocked faces behind daniel's unbeknownst to him this is the point i've been making for like the past like I guess I guess it's really been a really long time, over a year, but you know, I guess eight months of shows, which is that's all she does on promos anymore is just stand behind him and make faces. Yeah. Oh, but um, she'll be she'll get to do a little more tonight. But yeah, yeah. that brings us to uh, Ricky Reyes defeating Chad Collier via submission in seven minutes nine seconds when he made them tap to the Dragon Sleeper. Se- know, se- second yeah. best, second best Chad that is involved in this show. <laughs> very sweet matt that, 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 you know what matt i'm proud of you right now but matt thanks this what do you think of this match we are in the ricky reyes like squashes fools era but this is the uh maybe a sign that, that was coming to an end very soon because this was not a squash this was actually you know somewhat substantial as a match yeah i am um, i have tended not to really enjoy ricky reyes singles matches over the past many shows that we've watched like i they're generally pretty boring and i wasn't really expecting much of this and like didn't really was paying super close attention at the beginning um other than i noticed that collier's hair really grew in like you know, he had that mohawk a few months earlier and i think now he like went like way other direction he has like a mop but i thought it looked good um but yeah these are two guys that were not like super over and they're both heels and so like i feel like they had an uphill battle but things were really well executed and by the end of the match, the crowd was popping. Like, um, you know, when, when Collier, um, got his arm in like a, you know, there's like a, you know, like an arm bar kind of thing. And he maneuvered that into a clover leaf. Like the crowd really popped. And, you know, Reyes fought his way to the ropes and they, the crowd booed. And then, like, Reyes avoided another clover leaf, uh, got clover leaf, got a two count with a bridge and Reyes, kicked out and turned that into the dragon sleeper and after a struggle call your captain the crowd was like reacting to all that which i really didn't expect and i feel like if you can get a crowd that didn't care about you to pop for your finishing sequence like you did a pretty good job at the very least so i don't think this was a particularly good match but it was definitely better than i expected i i would say it was pretty solid for the time that it got and its place put on the card like nothing that i'll remember but better than I expected. Chad, you're like one of the most um, like well-versed wrestling fans I know. So I'm going to do the horrible thing and just assume you've seen all wrestling. But on this show, we've always been um, 
kind of the, you know, I think a lot of people were not huge fans of the Havana Pitbulls, although I'm lower on that than that was in Ring of Honor. And, you know, this Ricky Reyes thing, I don't think we're out on a limb saying it was not, it, it mostly underwhelmed us barring this match. Um, I haven't seen much of any, like, Havana, obviously I've seen a bunch of Rocky Romero, but Havana Pitbull stuff or Ricky Reyes solo stuff out of Ring of Honor. Have you seen any, like, because I remember they came into Ring of Honor with such, like, a lot of hype. And some, there are, there is a history in Ring of Honor of teams that just, or acts that just for some reason, they didn't click in Ring of Honor, but they clicked everywhere else. Do you have any, like, do you have any opinions on Ricky Reyes? That's, that's a huge assumption I'm making, Matt. I mean, Chad. And, um, what do you think about this match? Yeah, I don't. I mean, so I know they had. In my memory of the Havana Pitbulls leading into Ring of Honor, I would say there was a very vocal minority that was really into them. Uh, the stuff I'd seen of them up to their debut, I hadn't been overly impressed with. Uh, the other singles, Ricky Reyes stuff I've seen, like around like IWA Mid South, um, he was in like a TPI. It's fine, you know, but nothing extraordinary. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've I've been pretty aligned in my memory with you guys' comments on the matches uh, themselves. Uh, now this match, when I saw it flip on the screen, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> um, but, but much like Matt, I, I was, I was, I guess, pleasantly surprised. And I agree with his sentiment that while, you know, it probably actually topped out as like borderline good on like a star rating metric, uh, it actually overexceeded my expectations. Now, at the beginning, I think it was Lenny Leonard that said, like, this is going to be a great technical contest. And I don't think it was a very technical match at all. Like they did chain wrestling for about the first minute and then kind of went off of that. Um, but there was some kind of solid psychology in the neck being worked over of Collier uh, to set up the Dragon Sleeper. And like Matt mentioned, when Collier does transition to the Cloverleaf, I was shocked at the reaction of the crowd. Like they were definitely into it uh for what was this kind of i mean certainly lower card match on the on the entire card uh the they they do get over i think the dragon sleeper uh is being well built as kind of a deadly finisher uh but you know if the finisher is put over but the wrestler and character behind it isn't that interesting then it kind of tops out but as far as the segment, I mean, this was something that, you know, when I think about this show as a whole and think about, like, when I go through my chronological watch of 2006, like, this would be a very easy match to just outright skip if you saw it on a match yeah. listing. And while I don't think it's essential, and, you know, I think you could rest easy at night if you never see this match, if you're just coming in blind and want to watch 2006 as a whole um, I, I think you would kind of enjoy it if you watch it. And like I said, it over exceeded my expectations. Yeah. Um, good news is I completely with, agree with you too. Bad news is you guys covered basically everything I had in my personal notes for this. You guys basically said almost word for word at some points. Um, yeah, Matt, I agree. I was shocked at how over that, that spot near the end where, um, you know, where, uh, 
well, I guess at well, no, near the end where um, Collier reverses like a drag a triangle armbar into the Texas low relief like Clover. I was surprised how badly this crowd like popped for the idea that Collier could pull this one out. And yeah, I agree with you, Chad, that you know it probably tops out at like strong above average, maybe bordering on good. But like that was a shock for me, and I think Collier had a lot to do with it. I think. Like you were saying, they, they were selling um, that, oh, it's going to be a technical wrestling match. And it really wasn't like Collier. This wasn't about as like fast, like, you know, Collier can do, you know, he's fairly well-rounded. But this was him really not doing much match stuff. This was him throwing like nice drop kicks, a couple nice German suplexes, breaking out the Gato clutch. Like he was doing a much more fast-paced match. In, you know, more enjoyable than you would think, not something you need to go out and see. Uh, we return backstage again for a promo with the other faction from Dragon Gate that is here at the Triple Shot. That would be Blood Generation, consisting of Sima, Shima, um, Masato Yoshino, and Naruki Doi. Shima says, hey, Generation Next, I don't speak English much. To me, next means second. And then Shima asks, who is number one? His teammates tell him in Japanese. And Shima says, Blood Generation is number one. And then he screams. So... More personality than do fixer. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, I'm very happy that I um, have the finally have the opportunity on this podcast to bring back my joke that I made a few years ago on a podcast with Alan Farrell when he talked about Naruki Doi, where it sa- that name sounds to me like some like a, just like a silly way of saying like nice day, like have a Naruki Doi, like so <laughs> I I would would do that if I talked more often to people that would get that reference. But I don't, so I'm just going to say it at the end. I'm just going to say it at the end of this podcast, just warning everybody right now. Thank you for the warning. Yes. But, um, we cut to Samoa Joe backstage. Boy, a lot of backstage promos so far on this show. My God. Cut to Samoa Joe, also backstage. Joe says, tonight, Christopher Daniels steps in the ring one more time with a man he's never had a chance of beating, a man who hates him more than anyone else here. Tonight, the the result will be the same, but tonight when all is said and done, Daniels will shake Joe's hand whether he <clears throat> he likes it or not. So I like how both guys tease that they're going to win and there's going to be a handshake. I guess, you know, this is part of building that idea of, you know, Daniels is going he's, he's gonna to shake a hand soon, folks, but we still don't get it tonight via, due to some happenings, but, <clears throat> pardon me, that brings us to probably the most famous, well, definitely not probably, I would say definitely the most famous match on this show. B.J. Whitmer defeats Jimmy Jacobs via with Lacey via pinfall in 15 minutes, 14 seconds after he hits a lariat. So before the match, this is kind of a milestone where this is the first time the Ballad of Lacey is now, is now used as Jimmy Jacobs' personal ring entrance theme. And I guess <clears throat> showing the power of things starting to air on RHvideos.com and YouTube, a couple of fans immediately pop and clap for the first notes of it, despite the fact that show can't have possibly been released on DVD yet. Um, but they get, you know, a few, no, I would say not even close to the majority, but a few fans recognize it. Uh, Jacob spends almost his entire entrance waving his hand over his head like he's holding a lighter or a cell phone, which, you know, the fans were not responding in kind, but they, they would pick on, on his cue, pick up on his cue very shortly. Uh, he sings along to the match of the year part of his theme and shouts that he and Lazy are, in fact, the match of the year. And then as BJ enters the ring, we are shown a bad video quality clip of him attacking Jimmy Jacobs in an outdoor ring in a parking lot on a Fox 2 news segment, which <clears throat> this seemed like something that Ray Var was doing, like, not, you know, once in a while, whenever they had a chance on a local Fox affiliate to set up a ring outdoor somewhere and have a few rushes take bumps to promote the show. And it is most notable to me for, you know, 
Whitmer attacks Jacobs, and Jimmy Yang is just in the ring watching, not doing anything, which kind of sums up his Ring of Honor run. Uh, Prezak, again, later says, hey, that took place on Fox's morning show. So, yeah, um, this is, you know, this was the match that was, you know, the first big Ring of Honor match between Whitmer and Jacobs, which would become kind of a big uh, indie feud. We can talk about the match itself. You know, I can certainly have notes on that, but this match is really remembered for one thing, which is an insanely botched powerbomb spot where uh, deep into the match, Whitmer looks to powerbomb Jimmy Jacobs off the top rope, but he slips. And um, I think as the honorable mention guys describe it as there's like something that covers part of like the turnbuckle area that just kind of slipped under Whitmer's foot. He starts to fall backwards, not the direction you want when you are standing on the top rope, holding another human being. And, Whitmer, what happens is Whitmer basically tries to push Jacobs as forward as much as he can as he's falling, trying to get him into the ring. And what basically what happens is Whitmer basically falls backwards straight down from the top turnbuckle to the floor. He ends up, I believe, breaking his ankle. Um, Jacobs, meanwhile, his head hits one of the ropes and then the apron on the way down. I believe he got at the very least whiplash from that and a possible concussion. It's a miracle they walked away from it. We see multiple instant repl- replays, which is a rarity for Ring of Honor. You know, you, you hear the reaction of the crowd, which is an initial, like, oh, my God, this is cool, followed, like, a half second later to it, oh, my God, like, did someone just die? You even hear, like, a couple high-pitched screams of, of terror from fans in the crowd. Um, it is amazing they walked away from it. And not only did they walk away from it, they wrestled for another two to three minutes, including a finish that sees Jacobs take a belly to belly superplex and a huge lariat for the finish it's one of those weird moments that happens in wrestling where guys are probably selling real injuries less than they're actually probably feeling them like like because they have more wrestling to do like it's clear by after the bump that whitmer has hurt his ankle but it's not until immediately after the finish of the match where he like urgently unties his boot and really starts checking on it before then you know he's just He's got a, a fake fight to get go through. And likewise, like less than a minute after that huge botch, Jacobs is kicking out of a move and then almost immediately back on offense and transition, hitting the contra code for a near fall. So, you know, we can get to the my I mean, I have other thoughts on the match, but I guess um Chad, like I think this is one of the scariest uh Botches I've ever seen in wrestling that people have walked away from, basically. Like, I've seen, obviously, we've seen tragedies in wrestling rings, but it, off the top of my head, I can't think of, of many spots where, like, it was this scary that the guys came out relatively unscathed. Yeah, I mean, it's a horrifying spot. It it looks, you know, it, it's one of those things where you've seen it so many times that, you may think you may be a little desensitized to it, but I was not uh, when it came up and it happened when I rewatched the match. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I, I think it leads to an overall discussion, uh, you know, that we know they did have legitimate injuries, but like you said, they both kind of walked away from it with not um, career altering injuries um it's 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 one of those interesting things like it and a lot of kind of 
I, it's it's one of those things I, I don't quite know where I stand, uh, both from like a humility standpoint and from a fan standpoint. I, I kind of liken it to something that was career altering, and that's Shibata versus Okada. Um, and him kind of continuing that match even to the end when, um, you know, he was near death, actually. Uh, but, but in this case, it, it's a terrible botch. I, I would say uh, it's 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 awful what happened with Whitmer falling straight back, uh, but really Jacobs's neck hitting the apron uh, as violent as it does. I think that's where you can really see that. You know, I I don't know if there's any other way to say it than he just got lucky. You know, yeah. there's no there's nothing else to say because I mean his neck completely hits. The uh, the hardest part of the ring, as we're told a million times, uh, pretty full force. He had no way to kind of brace himself, and uh, he, he's really lucky that it was only whiplash if that was his injury, which is tough to say, but true. Matt, um, do you have any memories of this at the time? Like, I mean, I know you weren't here, but like, I mean, it, it is still crazy to to rewatch this all these years later and to like it's crazy to think if if this happened in today's wrestling they stopped the match probably right you'd hope yeah 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 you know, a lot of promotions so. yeah you you I mean you'd think and you'd hope I guess you can't say for sure but um I'd like to think that they would um I um my memory I mean I remember hearing about it I I, I think I remember when I finally saw it. It was crazier than I expected, and I remember like being blown away that they kept the match going and like that the match was still dramatic after that. Like I, I couldn't believe it. And obviously, they play off this spot a few times uh, in subsequent matches. But um, yeah, I. Um, it's funny because you mentioned like this; it wasn't career altering. But the funny thing is, for Jacobs, it kind of was, but like in the opposite way of what you'd expect. When you combine this with the new character and the Ballad of Lacey, I think this greatly helped his career. Like this, this performance, I think probably gave um, promoters and probably Gabe specifically a lot of faith in him to get over and to you know be uh, reliable. And you know, when you just combine everything, I feel like. I'm sure, like, if you asked Jimmy Jacobs, you'd probably say, like, this was match was part of a big turning point for him in the, in a positive way, you know, as horrifying as that is to say. So it's kind of ironic in that way. Yeah, and I thought the match itself, it was, it's hard for me to judge because to me that, that bump kind of overshadows everything, but I think it was a pretty good, on its way to being a pretty good match, you know. I, th- I, I think, were- I think it was, I think it was kind of like, really good in some ways like there yeah. was a, it, it, the crowd was already like getting into it even before that but then after that they were just they were just like way into it for obvious reasons because they didn't expect him to kick out i think both guys but especially jacobs you really saw he's really going for it because you, you we talked on recent shows about this was a part of his career where if it wasn't for like he but until the ballad of Lacey and probably stuff like this you know it sounded like gabe was about to phase him out probably after this match and you can tell like jacobs is taking these big flip bumps when he's getting whipped into the guardrail they do a crazy intentional spot where um whitmer like lifts jacobs up for a suplex jacob starts wiggling his legs in the air and then they both fall over the top rope from that position you know which is terrifying and intentional you know there's some fun stuff with like um uh 
I like there was a part where BJ like had uh, Jacobs in like a tombstone position and then lifts him up from that position into like a snake eyes. I thought, I thought it was a, they were going pretty hard and apparently, and normally I like to have better sources than this, but um, according to Grizz632 from a 16 uh, year old post on the MMA underground message board, nice. he wrote, I talked with Whitmer the night after the match happened. Apparently, Jacobs was supposed to reverse the powerbomb into a Rana, but the turnbuckle shifted under Whitmer's foot before they could pull it off. Scary stuff. So that actually wasn't even supposed to be a powerbomb. It was supposed to be actually Jacobs turning it into a Rana if this fan is to be believed. No, but you know what? Like, even before, you know, uh, the great Grizz 632 um, confirmed <laughs> that. And, and I know, Trevor, you would never go based on hearsay. So you actually called Grizz uh, last night and got the confirmation. Yeah. But – um. The, I remember even remember last year when we saw Jacobs do that in a match. I guess it was last year, like in the real time. It was probably like two years ago in our in our actual lives. But um, and I and I remember thinking like, oh, that's probably what they were planning to do in the match with um, you know, when Jacobs fell. So that was my hunch. I I, I didn't know for sure, but it makes sense because it it kind of like it changes the way that you balance yourself, you know. Um, when when you're when Whitmer is like preparing to like flip forward, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it kind of makes sense right. that that would be the uh, that would be the spot they were going for. Yeah. Instead of just stepping forward, he now has to kind of really brace himself to like launch off the top rope. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, yeah, he takes that step. His foot slips underneath something, and now everything's going wrong. But um. Yeah, and then the, I guess the last thing to talk about in the match is just that, you know, they wrestle, as I mentioned earlier, for like another couple minutes. Like they do near falls. They, uh, they, um, the, and there's a spot they, they do a whole thing where Jenny Jacobs hits the Contra code and the announcers kind of sell like he could win the match right here, but he does not go for the cover because Lacey tells him, like, I don't care about you winning. I want you to hurt him more. And uh, he puts BJ on a table outside the ring. He teases that he's going to do a senton off the top through the table, but BJ fights back, you know, gets back in the ring and they go to the finish and BJ wins. But yeah, it is, it is crazy again to watch this, to see guys knowing that BJ has like legit really screwed up his ankle, knowing that Jimmy Jacobs is probably lucky to be alive to see these, like, like that's the part where, you know, the, on paper, those last two minutes are exciting, but I had a hard time almost focusing because I just – I viewed everything from the lens of like, oh my god, you guys are still doing stuff. you know. I had forgotten that BJ's injury was as bad as it was too until you just said that because you know, I remember 2006. You know, BJ is in a big match in a 100th show just like a month after – less than a month after this. And, you know, he has a really big run as far as the CZW feud. This is actually a hell of a year for BJ overall. I mean, he starts the year with that Samoa Joe match, which I liked a lot. Um, you know, this match is extremely memorable. He has a lot of really memorable angles with CZW and a couple of really great matches, too, that, you know, we're going to get to later on. I, um, you know, BJ's 2006, I would say, is pretty underrated. And this, and for Jacobs, this is like the match that turns him into something where it's like, oh, he could be placed in these serious heavy-duty matches that people care about, to the point where I'd say at the end of this uh, Whitmer and Jacobs feud, a year later, they, they have one of my favorite matches in ROH history. So th- this, is, this is a big moment, this match, for all sorts of reasons, good and bad. It's mostly bad, but, but some good. <laughs> Chad, do you have any other thoughts about the uh, match in general, apart from the crazy moment? Yeah, so I, I kind of... 
was wondering where the discussion would go, but uh, I, I guess my kind of hot take on the match itself with the way it was, you know, yeah, like hypothetically you would think the match would be stopped, but it didn't. And I think, you know, unequivocally for the live crowd, them continuing the match added a lot of drama. Yeah. Um, once they get back in, there's a lot of high drama and I, I really got into the storyline of the match and I was into it when it happened. Um, you know, these are two I wouldn't have thought would be a great pairing against each other, but I do think they had great chemistry with each other throughout the years. But um, th- this felt like a lot of things coming to a head where, you know, like Jimmy's in this emotional kind of angle with Lacey and she's, you know, demanding he go for more violence instead of the outright win. Uh, so, so that's going on. Then you also have kind of a little bit of a big brother, little brother dynamic with, uh, BJ and Jimmy together. And then also like the fact that, you know, BJ was so embroiled in this CCW feud that you could tell, like, he was a little unhinged in this match. You know, maybe a little more violent, a little more aggressive than he normally would because he was on edge because of that kind of uh, animosity that was swirling around. Um, so as a result, like, as a match, the way it was presented, spot and all, like, th- this is in contention as my match of the night, actually. Like, I, I do think this is... Uh, as presented a great match that goes a long way in presenting both of them. And just from execution wise, even before the botch uh, had a lot of intensity and violence and neat narratives uh, that played along uh, into the match overall. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, yeah, Matt, it, it's interesting to think like, this was simultaneously maybe like the most over we were entering the period of like the most over period of BJ Whitmer's ring of honor career. And that's probably played a big uh, factor of why he worked through an injury that probably a lot of guys would say, you know what, maybe I should take a few months off because like the observer of the uh, Dave Meltzer and the observer even wrote after the show, Whitmer's ankle was really hurting the rest of the weekend and he's getting it checked out this week. It was an ankle he's had surgery on previously. So, like, you know, not just did he, like, break or something. I think he broke it. I think it's broken, this ankle. It's an ankle he had already previously had to have surgically repaired. And just the fact that he— Can you go that long without—on a broken ankle? Because he really didn't take almost any time off. I guess it depends if it was, like, a hairline crack or who knows. But, like, I mean, yeah, maybe they altered, like, cards on the next two nights of the double shot to kind of accommodate. But— it's amazing. Like uh, if we go right after the match, uh, Gabe Sapolsky walks to ringside. We can see Gabe Sapolsky walk to ringside and you can clearly hear Whitmer telling Gabe like immediately he quote, my ankles fucked. Like he just tells him like, and I don't know, you know, Gabe was just honestly concerned or especially knowing that BJ's booked for like multiple segments. Like he has to do something immediately after the match and later in the night. So he's probably wondering like, Oh Jesus Christ. Like is Whitmer even gonna be able to walk to, you know, back out here. And so, yeah, after the match, even with it clearly causing him pain, Whitmer forces himself to pose on multiple second rope turnbuckles. Like, he's going to get his pop, even if his, his ankle is broken. He gets BJ Chance. He waits for Jacobs to get to his feet. The crowd gives them a standing ovation, which, you know, Ray Vire fans did not always do at this time. So they clearly appreciated everything. 
Uh, BJ holds out his hand for a handshake. Jacobs looks to Lacey for approval. The crowd does a loud shake his hand chant. Uh, Jacobs leaves without shaking a hand. As Jacobs and Lacey leave, though, Whitmer grabs the mic. He asks Jimmy, is he really not going to shake my hand after what we just did together? BJ then calls Lacey a skanky piece of ass. Uh, Jacobs goes back to the ring apron, offers his hand, and when BJ walks up to Jacobs to shake his hand, Jimmy spits on his face, walks away. Jimmy and Lacey leave, and BJ gets over that. He transitions to cutting a promo about what happened to him at the Arena Warfare show in the ECW Arena. Whitmer says, rumor has it Chris Hero and Necro Butcher are somewhere in this building, but he tells those, quote, two pussies to get their, quote, fucking asses out here. They don't. BJ says, don't think he's not watching what happens for the rest of the night. So, yeah, BJ kind of at the center of this show, and now he has to hobble back out later for a second at the main event because... With his poor broken ankle. I felt bad for him. (laughs) And that brings us to Challenge Series 1. So one of the big selling points of this show was that Dragon Gate would be fighting Ring of Honor in a best of three Challenge Series. This was the first match. Uh, Ryo Saito defeated Jimmy Yang via pinfall in 11 minutes, 53 seconds, with the premium bridge Dragon Suplex. Uh, Chad... What I mean, Dragon Gate, you know, a lot of people love it, but it was also somewhat divisive. What were your opinions about Dragon Gate, I guess, now and at the time? And what did you think about the match? Because, you know, for some people, this was like, oh, man, Dragon Gate is the future of wrestling. And for some people, it was like, uh, this is it's it's a little like having pure uh, squishy syrup. And and it's a little too strong and too uh, undiluted for me. Yeah, I always I always feel like uh with some of the Dragon Gate Tory Mon discussions I kind of have to be the uh, good cop on pro wrestling only <laughs> uh because it's it's pretty maligned over there and just kind of to do a blanket statement or was um but but I mean I've always enjoyed it. Uh, I've thought it has some tendencies that can be off-putting such as uh excessive interference and whatnot but uh, one thing i've really enjoyed is kind of the long-term storytelling the uh core group of characters and then the multi-man matches now prefacing by saying all that one guy i do know i'm lower on kind of overall in general than uh some of the bigger dragon gate fans uh such as like Allen or uh, Case Low is Rio Saito. Um he's somebody I've always liked but uh never really loved and um as a result with this match and Jimmy Yang kind of fits into that grouping as well. Uh so so this was kind of the match I actually thought I would get with the Ricky Reyes Chad Collier match. I I <laughs> I just thought this was, uh, you know, it was solid, but it, to me, it felt disjointed, uh, not a lot of focus in and out. I, I didn't get a sense of a whole lot of drama. Um, I know Jimmy Yang is, uh, what was he ranked? Like number two or something inexplicably <laughs> in the top five. And he has a, uh, he has a token title defense coming up in about a month, but he was someone that I always felt like kind of they, they kept trying to build up uh, with his run in Ring of Honor to be more important or have more, I guess, credibility than he necessarily projected in his matches. 
Um, and I, I felt that was the case here. I mean, I felt this was an easy kind of victory for Saito to get. And uh, overall, I thought the match was just there and pretty disjointed. Yeah, I, I thought this was just a little bit above average. Um, Jimmy Yang continues to not click in Ring of Honor. I thought Saito was the star of this match. His offense, you know, was well executed. I liked his uh, cool Fisherman's Express, for those who don't know, which is like a rolling Fisherman's suplexes into a Fisherman's Buster. He added a little humor at one point. He did, like, some test of strength fakeouts where, like, Yang wants a test of strength. Rio would, uh, like, put his hand by the mat instead. Or then at one point he offered his foot for a test of strength, which I thought was funny. You know, he blisters Yank's chest with some chops, but overall this, you know, didn't, yeah, like, like you said, I, I think disjointed is a good word to put for it. I think Yang, you know, it's his usual big roundhouse kicks that are in the same spots in his matches that they always are in the same mid-match random submission move that he's always seems to be in his matches that doesn't really lead to much. Um, there's a kind of a weird moment or outright botch where uh, Yang goes for Yang time off the top rope. And uh, Saito looks like he thinks I'm supposed to roll out of the way. And it, so he rolls most of the way and Yang barely gets him. But then Yang goes for the cover and then have it be a near fall. So clearly Yang's thought that was supposed to hit. And Saito seemed to think it wasn't supposed to hit. But they kind of just met in the middle in a bad way. Um yeah, and and weird, also weird, like, Yang wrestles this match almost like a heel for no reason. Like, early on in the match, they have, like, a corner break, and he slaps Saito in the face for no reason. When, when Yang gets control of the match in the middle where you're like, oh, all right, he's going to start, like, getting to show off some stuff and win the crowd over to his side, he, that's when he decides to slow the match down. I, it, just a weird performance. Like, not terrible, but kind of par for the Yang course, I would say. Matt, what did you think? Now, this is one of the rare matches where you didn't like it that much, and I liked it even less. Um, wow. No, I mean, I don't think it was, like, terrible, like, because, you know, they're competent wrestlers and stuff, but I thought it was disappointing, and I thought probably the low light of the night. Um, just, it was, I mean, I think the, I mean, yes, it was disjointed, yes, there was awkwardness, but I think, like, its biggest sin was that it was just really boring. Like, it just didn't move, you know, I mean, it didn't move me at all, and you know, you think of these Dragon Gate matches, and I think the other matches will will bear this out, but um, that they're fast paced. You know, like they, there's they have a go at an accelerated pace, and this match was slow. And you know, you could tell, like not you know, Saito, he wasn't you know, he wasn't there to be like, okay, let me show everybody what Dragon Gate can do in this match. You know, like he was he was sort of working the American style rather than bringing the Dragon Gate style, which the other matches later would do. I mean, I guess that was probably his thinking, right? Like, the other matches will do Dragon Gate, I'll do America. And, you know, I think that might have been a mistake because this match wasn't that great. You know, execution-wise, they're both pros, but even on that level, I don't think it was particularly good, especially the, like you said, disjointed. The final few spots were kind of awkward. There was that botch on that you were that you mentioned. In fact, to me the most entertaining part of the match was that someone in the crowd yelled, "It's still real to me, damn it," because that reminded me that that reference was new in 2006. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but uh and by the way, as far as you mentioned like some uh, Trevor, some people think that the Dragon Gate style was, you know, the future and other people don't like it. I mean, how could you argue that it wasn't the future and having just watched the AEW trios title tournament? You know, like how could well, you watch those ma- how could you watch those matches and not think that they were influenced by 
mid two thousands Dragon Gate. Well, I guess it could be both. Like I think I think some people thought it was future, and some people were scared it was going to be the future. Maybe would would be the way to put it. I mean, I think yeah, I think it's undeniable that. In fact, that's a note I have for another match. I think it's undeniable. It really hit me watching this. What an influence it's had. For me, the most entertaining part of this match came after the match because after the match, two random fans throw streamers. You got to love when just one or two fans see fit to throw a streamer in the ring. And Saito grabs one of the streamers and he wipes his brow with it and then stuffs it down his trunks. Then Yang sees that. He grabs the other streamer and stuffs it down his trunk. Yeah, is that like like a Dragon Gate tradition that I just don't know about? Like, (laughs) it was very strange. Um, Like, not just down his trunks, like in their crotches. <laughs> look, you, you streamers, you know, in today's world, you, you can't turn down a, you can't, you can't look a good gift streamer in the in the mouth. You know, you gotta take take whatever you can. But Is, are those streamers in your pants? Or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> so that brings should I edit to, that? Should I edit that out, no, Trevor? Matt, come <laughs> on, that's perfectly fine. Um, that brings us to the embassy of Alex Shelley and Jimmy Ray with Prince Nana in their corner defeating. Brian Daniels and Delirious in 20 minutes, 56 seconds, when Shelly pinned Delirious after he hit the slice spread number two. So the story going into this match was kind of continuing the embassy Brian Danielson feud, which you would have thought would have been over by now. But the gimmick going into this match, I guess, was before the show, Danielson said, like, you know, I can beat you guys with any partner in the world. You know, you can pick whoever for me. So they picked Delirious, who at this point had not really won in Ring of Honor yet. So this match kind of doing some lifting on a few things. It's kind of continuing the Danielson embassy feud, even though that's mostly over. It's giving Shelly and Rave a win as they kind of start their tag push. And it's continuing this kind of a story that will continue throughout the triple shot of Delirious needs to start getting a win soon. He's, he's popular with the fans, but he's not getting the wins. Matt, lengthy match, almost 21 minutes. What'd you think about it? Yeah, this is one of those matches where we've talked about this before, where it's like, and a lot of times you get this in a Danielson match where it's not like a top-level Danielson singles match. It's house show style. They take their time, and it's all about character work. They're not trying to steal the show. And in that sense, I liked it. Like, I thought it was, you know, that these guys were having fun and, you know, being their characters. You know, this is, you know, Delirious's chance to work with the, you know, some of the bigger stars in the company, so to speak. And I think he, he, you know, he did a good job. He was really like a focal point of the match. Really, Danielson kind of took a step back in a, a lot of cases. You know, you really didn't feel like, oh, this is the biggest star in the company, Brian Danielson. He sort of was, not that he took the night off or anything, but he did, I think, allow other people to shine in this match more than himself. Um, Delirious in particular. Um, there was, uh, when they were coming out, it looked like it was a person in the crowd that had a, a Ghana flag. And so they actually used it in the match. Like, Rave put the flag over Delirious's head. Um, at one point, Delirious put the flag in his mouth, and there was an eat it chant. And, you know, just in a, in a post-pandemic world, I was just thinking, this is really ill-advised. You do really have no idea where that flag has been if it's coming from just some random person in the crowd. But um, I think most people are just not as germaphobic as I am. So I, I think that's fair. But, um, you know, like the, when Danielson comes in, he's, you know, he he's sort I mean, he's mostly a baby face here, not completely, but mostly, you know, and sometimes you don't know which Danielson you're going to get, but, you know, he starts to dismantle Shelly, technically speaking, um, and then they do a fun spot where Delirious does an airplane spin, but it's short, so Danielson's like, that's not how you do it, 
and he does his own to Jimmy Rave, and it is, in fact, better. And then he, uh, and Delirious, like, while Danielson is spinning with Rave, Delirious just runs around them in a circle, and Delirious <laughs> falls down dizzy even before Danielson is done spinning. So almost like Delirious is literally like a dog, where, like, if you have, a little, like, a playful dog and you start, like, spinning around, the dog will start just, like, running around and being crazy. And that's basically <laughs> what Delirious is doing. And then when Danielson stops, he yells, now that's an airplane spin. Um, by the way, I'm going to refer to Danielson and Delirious as D&D for the rest of this, which I think the announcers actually mention at one point too, but I thought, <laughs> I, I thought of it independently, just, just so you know, they, their names both start with D. So that's why I thought of it. Um, but um, as things start to pick up, Gabe jumps onto commentary, which – you know, I'm still just like, is is this character fired or isn't he? I don't know. But he announces that the embassy will wrestle um, Yang and Claudio the next night in Chicago. They're really making last-minute decisions here. Um, but uh, I guess that's fine. Um, but yeah, at one point, Danielson goes out to chase Nana, um, and that allows Shelly to kick him and send him into the guardrail. So at that point, the embassy takes over. Things slow down, and that's when the embassy gets to have their fun. Um there's a fun moment where Danielson is crawling toward the corner while Shelly pulls his leg away from the corner. Danielson yells at Delirious, pull the tag rope. Um, you really don't see too many guys think to do that. Like he's tell- telling their partner to make, to grab the tag rope. Um, he tries to do like Danielson does like a wacky evasion of a double clothesline where he like, he backflips over both guys' arms, but it, it doesn't totally work. But I was like, you know what? That's novel and fun. So I like that. Um, um, so I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um, then it gets, yeah, it gets a little bit more hot toward the end where, um, Rave avoids shadows over hell. Shelly super kicks Delirious right in the face. Delirious avoids the slice bird number two. And Danielson hits Shelly with the, uh, a really brilliantly timed missile drop kick. Like, just the timing on that spot was really impressive. But I guess everything Danielson was doing at this point was pretty impressive. Um, gets Raven the cattle mutilation while Delirious gets Shelly in a cattle mutilation simultaneously. Um, and Danielson isn't legal, so he has to break the hold. And he does a topai onto Rave on the floor. And Shelly starts kicking it. Delirious hits a drop kick. Delirious comes back with some kicks. And then Hayes at one point gets on the apron but then jumps off and then comes back on. So I think she just realized that like she was too early for the spot. That was my read on it. But second time she's on the apron, Shelly low blows Delirious and hits a slice spread number two and Rave spears Danielson while Shelly pins Delirious. Um, my The one thing that's a pet peeve of mine in ROH is when they do the thing where someone distracts the ref so someone can hit a low blow. The reason that annoys me is just because the refs don't disqualify you for doing it in front of their faces. So why are you wasting all this time doing the distraction? But other than that, I had a very good time watching this. Matt, I, I think that was a great review. I think the highlight, though, was I, um, you saying, like, you don't know where that flag has been. Because I started thinking, well, generally, don't you know where most flags have been? <laughs> like, I can think of two places most flags usually have been. But I just think you don't know where that flag has been is like a great phrase that will be stuck in my mind for a while now. But so you get I'm what not... I, but you get what I'm saying, right? It's like it was yeah, brought yeah. by it was brought by a random guy. Like yeah. what was he doing? Like maybe he was sitting on it while completely naked. You know? That's what I like to imagine he was doing anyway. 
Uh, Chad, you know, what, what do you think about this match? I mean, again, like lengthy match and, uh, but clearly not one of the selling points of the show in terms of not a huge marquee match, not high on the card. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an interesting match to watch me kind of parachuting in, uh, reviewing this show, uh, because I, I generally think with 2006 Ring of Honor, I mean, one of the first things you think of is Brian Danielson. Um, and this isn't kind of one of his, you know, marquee kind of spots. I, I did, uh, I, I think I may have liked it a little bit less than Matt. I, I thought it was good, but, um, I did think it was kind of more of a tale of two matches. Uh, I actually liked the back half quite a bit once they started working over Danielson. Uh, I, I was wondering if this, this is kind of one of the last times for a while he'll be, kind of in the baby face role and the face in peril, um, uh, have that type of segment. It was interesting to watch. Um, in the first half, he still did a few cocky things. He does, you know, I have to five and whatnot. And he's not totally receptive to delirious as his partner. Uh, they have kind of a few odd couple moments and spots. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the first half of the match, I did like the airplane spot, and then the later half, I did like the uh, dual catamulations. But I, I thought the first half sort of dragged on a little bit with the comedy uh, for Delirious, and I did like the back half much better. I thought, I thought at the end, with the embassy getting the win and sort of neutralizing uh, Danielson and then pinning Delirious, I like that. I, I think it shows their progression. Uh, I do in some ways question now it's like, oh, they're facing Claudio and Yang on the next show because it feels like this win is more impressive than that win hypothetically yeah. would be. Um, but, uh, but I, I could see how like this, this win gets over that, you know, like if you're a good tag team, uh, you can beat the top single star. Uh, in a tag match in a, at any given point, uh, which is a theory I like and I think is underutilized kind of historically in wrestling. Um, so I do, I do think this was good. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it disappointing just because I think like with the spot it was on the show, it wasn't supposed to be one of the focal points. Uh, but it, but it lived up to that. I mean, it just met its expectation for me. Yeah, the word I use to describe this match is pleasant. Like it, it I agree. Kind of, I think I'm kind of at the level you, of you were, Chad. Where like it's good. It's nothing particularly great, you know. And like Matt said, it does have that house show vibe. It's a lot more character based, a lot more humor. But you know, you think about this was a triple shot. Danielson had two big matches come up. He goes almost an hour with Roderick Strong the next night. And then after that, he has Lance Storm in a big match. So you can see him maybe wanting to take some time. Take it a little more of a backseat here, you know, something that and seed some of the uh, attention to Delirious and make it more about him. And yeah, uh, it, you know, yeah, it is kind of like a household match for better and worse. So I feel like this is a match where if it's your expectations. If you come in kind of expect, we talk about this a lot through the years, like a lot of these matches, if you come in expecting a certain thing just based on paper, sometimes depending on the era, you're going to be let down. But if you kind of know, that sometimes guys wrestle to their position, you know, on a card, then I think you're going to get right probably the level you expect and, and enjoy it decently. Um, 
I did like, you know, I always love Alex Shelley as the, as the, in the, in this era as kind of like the goofball heel. He always has these little asides. And there was one moment I love where, um, Danielson's going for the surfboard, I think on Rave and Alex Shelley screams, Jimmy, he likes this move. Like as if somehow that will help Jimmy Rave. Like, like, like what's that going to, what's he going to do with that information? And then later when Danielson does get to do it, like, um, Shelley's making the sign of the cross, uh, you know, stuff like that. There is what I think is a botch apparently that was so bad they had to edit it off the show because there's a moment where it looks like Hayes attacks Brian Danielson on the outside, but the editing goes out of their way to miss the spot. You can tell it happens, but the camera doesn't show it. And then immediately you can hear the crowd chanting, you fucked up at her. And Daisy says to someone the crowd, he fucked up. So whatever it was, it was deemed so bad that even Ring of Honor went out of their way to like, edit it out but no matter still decent match um next we are outside where dave presek is asking colt cabana if he's sure he wants to cut a promo right now colt is sure i want to point out this point we can only tell it's colt from his voice because it is so dark outside and the way the light is hitting him colt's body is illuminated but his face is in total blackness do you think like a do you think in this case they have an excuse for it being so dark because, like, Colt wants to be away from the noise and the light, so we went to do it outside? Do you think that's a suitable excuse, or do you think it's just ROH being ROH? I mean, that's the excuse they give. I wrote my notes. Colt looks like a guy doing an interview not about Homicide the Wrestler, but someone in witness protection doing an interview about Homicide the Crime. <laughs> that's what I wrote. <laughs> um <laughs> Prezak says uh, Colt requested to do the promo outside, away from everything. Again, like to Matt's point, you know, that the sound and stuff's going to bug him because he's concussed. Colt says it's a bit muggy inside. He wants to be away from everything. Colt starts to cut a promo, saying that this is the thing needs to come to an end before he grabs his head in pain. Colt says he'll do it over, but Prezak tells him, you know, you may have a concussion. Like, you, you really need to see a doctor. And then Gabe's voice, we can hear from behind the camera saying, that was fine. Like, that's enough. And again, that's another kind of thing we probably would not see in wrestling today where guys are basically, like, openly talking, selling concussions and being, you know, how valiant it is to fight through a concussion where nowadays that, that's the kind of thing. Um, um, did you remember Danielson versus Garcia from two months ago? Okay, but that's that's faking a concussion. Yeah. But this is valiantly, like, fighting through okay, – okay, maybe. You know what? Danielson <laughs> keeping it alive. You ruined it. Okay, fine. I did. I, that's what I do. That brings us to the first match back from intermission. Claudio Castagnoli defeated Shane Hagedorn via pinfall in four minutes, one second after he hit the Apamari water slide. This was another one of those squash matches that we were talking about in recent shows that were being taped in this era for RH. ROHvideos.com that they were just also throwing on the DVDs proper. I will say, if the purpose of this match was to showcase Claudio and make him look good, Hagedorn actually probably got too much offense. Yeah, it, like, was, it wasn't a squash because, yeah, Hagedorn got most of the offense. Yeah, like Claudio gave him at least half of this match, I would say. I mean, he still beats him cleanly in four minutes flat, so in that sense, it's a squash, but it bordered on feeling like he was given... You know, considering that the Ring of Honor rookies up to this point had been treated very shabbily, it was kind of a shock to see a guy on the ascent give a rookie that much. Um, I don't remember if this is the first time we see Hagedorn as a heel on a main card or not. But when no, he- no, no, it wasn't definitely wasn't the first time. 
But when he comes out, it was like he was trying to jam as much heelness per second as possible into his act. From from his very moment of his entrance, he's jaw-jacking with the fans. He's finding moments to post after to like pose after a move. He's asking Bobby Cruz if he wants to do the honor of taking his road off. You know, he's already overflowing with that smugness, and he's already comfortable interacting with fans mid-match, which I feel like a lot of rookies can only focus on hitting their moves because it's so overwhelming when you're learning wrestling that the idea that any rookie always impresses me when they can find moments to stop in the middle of working to, like, play off the crowd. And there's a who are you, who are you chant for Hagedorn, but I, and a you are, you're a douchebag douche chant. Uh, Hagedorn has a bit of comedy where he tries to keep up, but he can't, but... This whole review, it all builds to this one moment. This was the one moment I loved. Um, a fan asks Hagedorn, who cut your hair? Because Hagedorn has a different choice of a haircut here. And Hagedorn's reply is, your grandma. <laughs> it's one of those lines where if you sit down to actually think about, like, is that really a burn? Like, like it's not like, so I sit with your mother last night. Like, who cut your hair? Your hair? Your grandma cut my hair. Um okay like i just love those kind of moments i don't know if that was intentional or not but and also that that's a compliment to the grandma she's got style yeah exactly so um i don't know if you guys have any thoughts on you know a pretty short match but i mean it's it was i i always i was always impressed with how how quickly hagedorn took to the heel role and like leaned into it i you know i think he that he was pretty natural at that i don't mean like naturally unlikable but i mean like he was very unnatural in terms of like he kind of knew the little things to do and the big things to do, you know, you know, and you could tell like there were little things where it was like, okay, this is a guy who's new to this. So he's like really like going like harder than even probably he needs to. But it was like, it was always very entertaining. Um, I, I did, I would say though, the crowd chanting, who are you at him? So this is a crowd that has not been watching the DVDs because if you watch the DVDs, you know, we, you would know Shane Hagedorn by now, I would think. I mean, even that CM Punk uh, sign of dishonor match. He's the one that you know. He he's the one that uh, Punk signs the you know helps him sign the, the WWE contract. So. Yeah. So in case you were wondering if this was the first time that Tagadorn was a heel on DVD, yeah. Um, but I should remember that. Yeah. Um. After the match, Chris Hero and Necro Butcher hop the rail. They storm the ring. Chris Hero grabs the mic and tells the crowd that Claudio is his student. He found him in Europe. He saw his untapped potential, and he brought him to the U.S. They became a damn successful tag team. At this point, Necro jumps on Hero's back and piggyback rides him like a little kid, which was was uh, uh, something I did not remember and caught me off guard. They should have they should have done they should have done that shtick more often. Yeah. Necro was really in these early Ring of Honor shows doing like a childlike gimmick almost because there was another one when the crowd on a different show where the crowd was chanting something against CZW where like he covered his ears like he couldn't stand like of all things that would offend Necro Butcher it was like a, a, a F word but um Hero says he and Claudio become the CZ, became the CZW tag champs that gets some booze from the crowd and adds that they won Jakara's tag Grand, league Grand Prix and they even spent a month as a tag team in Mexico the crowd chants at this point, shut the hell up. Which is, which is you know, speaking of uh, profanity, that's a very tame chant for an ROH crowd. Shut yeah. the hell up. It's only one yeah. step up from shut the heck up, which would, have, which would be a really funny chant now that I think about it. I would love a, just a, a please be quiet chant. <laughs> if I was a heel, I'd be cough guard more than that than shut the fuck up if someone started saying please be quiet. But, Trevor, um, you're an influencer. Just tweet about it and oh, it'll happen. Uh, Hero calls Claudio his best friend and says that the last show in Manhattan, his best friend turned his back on him. 
big Ring of Honor chant at this point. Uh, Claudio is playing that chant up. Uh, Hero gives Claudio one last chance to prove his allegiance to him and to CZW. Hero sticks out his hand when BJ Whitmer limps to the ring. Obviously, his ankle clearly screwed up. Poor guy. He attacks. Hero and Necro fight back. They start to beat BJ down. And, uh, just as, and Claudio is just watching at this point. So, um, he makes like he's going to join them, but instead he fakes them out. You, uh, European uppercuts Butcher instead. Hero throws a tantrum outside the ring and he and Necro both leave back to the crowd as Claudio and Whitmer shake hands and they hug in the ring. So this angle is continuing, even if BJ Whitmer has to limp on a broken ankle to help carry it out. Yeah, I mean, this was just, you know, nothing super memorable, but just a fine little segment to pro- to progress the storyline, you know, that would eventually have a pretty good payoff. And that brings us to the Challenge Series match number two. AJ Styles defeats Doofixer of Dragon Kid and Genki Horiguchi with Ryo Saito in their corner in 1231 when Styles pinned Horiguchi after he hit the Styles Clash. Uh, the Observer at the time wrote... Excellent match and apparently worth going out of your way to see. Now, I think this is a sign of a, of a match that does, you know, as standards change, age a bit because I would not call this a match that you have to go out of your way to see. I'd say this is strong good. This is like a three and a half star match to me. It, it's fun, but like this is the kind of match that's showing, like Matt, to your point earlier about how Dragon Gate was influential. You see this kind of action. This is a lot more frequent. This is not saying like, oh my god, you don't see this, you don't know what you're, t-, you know, you won't get to see it much in many other places. Um, this is also a match where you, the first match where you saw a good portion of the crowd knew Dragon Gate because they're pumped as soon as they see Do Fixer. You can tell they're especially pumped for Dragon Kid. They're pumped to see AJ Styles. And then there's this, there's this special reaction when they, when they're getting into the ring, where it's like the, you can hear the crowd realize like, oh shit, we're gonna get to see AJ Styles against Dragon Kid. And the crowd chants for Dragon Gate throughout the match. Some fans even know Horiguchi's H-A-J-G-E chant, which for fans who don't know that, um, Ginky Horiguchi was starting to bald at a relatively young age. At H-A-J-G-G, I keep saying J-G-E, Hage is, uh, the word in Japanese for bald, so fans in Japan would chant that as like a support for him. So the fact that some fans knew that, I, you know, shows you that there were some fairly educated fans in the show. Um, it, it's a match that gets hotter and hotter and crazier and crazier as it goes on. It is funny. I found that people were so excited probably for the AJ Dragon Kid parts, but those to me are not the most exciting parts of the match. Like they're entertaining, but usually when AJ's interacting with Dragon Kid here, a bunch of it is him just like kind of bullying Dragon Kid and not trying to like out high fly him. He's like shoving him down, pushing him around a bit, which I enjoyed, but I could see some fans being like, uh, that's not kind of what we expected from AJ against Dragon Kid. But, um, yeah, you, you know, overall, this is one of those high flyer performances, I would say from Dragon Kid, where every spot you're wondering if he's going to be able to pull it off. And more often than not on this night, he did, but there was, one botch on like a, a, a deja vu head scissors that did not work. Although AJ kind of saves it. He makes it look like he's kind of fighting it a bit, but it just definitely seemed like it was something that was supposed to come off smoother. A couple other little rough moments, but things that they pulled off. Um, really though, fast paced action, big dives. I like the finishing run with Horiguchi and Styles, which is just a series of them trading cradles and near falls until AJ catches him in the Styles Clash, which is a finish AJ likes to do. I've seen him use that, you know, a bunch of times in his career, but it was a well-executed version of that match here. Uh, Chad, what do you think about this? 
I was so happy we had this type of match on the show uh, because I rank this as a Trevor Dane patented, very good, not type, quite great. <laughs> so I was uh, delighted that uh, we had that. No, I mean, I, I did think this was, uh, you know, very good. Um, I, I was wondering uh, what you would say about AJ, because I know y'all had been kind of critical of some of his uh, Ring of Honor performances. Uh, I liked him here a good bit, and I liked him in the bully role. Um, I, I thought he played that off very well and added a, a kind of neat contrast to the match overall. Um, I, I thought as the match progressed, especially when uh, the Dragon Rana was hit, the, the reaction was great off of that. Uh, like you, Trevor, I was impressed with the H-A-G-E chant uh, to Ginky Horiguchi because, uh, I mean, really, of all the Dragon Gate contingent that came over on this tour, he's probably number six on the pecking order. Um, uh, well, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, for that to uh, to elicit a chant was kind of a nice deep cut and showed like how knowledgeable the fan base was. Um, uh, at least a portion of it. Uh, and then I like that the announcers also play in that, you know, he had his backside from heaven. And when he gets that as a near fall, it, it made that more dramatic as well. So, so yeah, very enjoyable match. It, it was quick too, which I thought was nice too. I, I, we'll get to it in the next match, but that, that is one to me positive of this series is this is a series of three matches where, you know, none of them were very long. Like, they didn't uh, inflate any of the matches to kind of try to inherently, you know, over-extentuate the epicness of it or, you know, to extend the gravity of the challenge in itself. So I appreciated that. I mean, I think this match clocked in around 13 minutes. Uh, The final two or three minutes were very exciting. Uh, the Styles Clash was a fitting finishing maneuver for this match that looked brutal, played into the storyline of the match that, you know, AJ was the bully that had the size advantage, uh, which is typically uh, not the case. Like, you usually don't see too many matches where AJ uh, kind of plays into that, that he has the size advantage over someone and acts accordingly. So, so yeah, very, very good match that I enjoyed quite a bit. Matt, what did you think of this? I mean, this is probably, you know, I mean, this is the, you know, we've seen Shima and even Shingo in Ring of Honor before, and we just saw another Dragon Gate match. This is technically, I guess, the first kind of Dragon Gate tag action, the thing that they'd become, become known for in Ring of Honor match in the promotion's history. Well, yeah, this is actually, that's actually something very similar to what I was going to say, which is, this is really the first time since ROH started using the Dragon Gate guys, which I guess was only one other show and one match on this show before this, where you really felt like, all right, like, this is what Dragon Gate has to offer. This is what they bring to the table. Because the other matches on Dragon Gate Invasion were just, like, they weren't, I mean, they weren't bad, but, like, they weren't that impressive, you know what I mean? This is the one where it's like, okay, this is Dragon Gate, I get it. Um, but I agree with both of you about the uh, the quality. You know, very good, not great. Um, I-, I thought what Chad said about AJ was interesting. Like, he does do a really good job in the bully role, and I think you know, it was a good choice. But I will say this. 
I think if this match was in TNA, this is not the match that AJ would have wrestled. Like, I think he would have done more and been faster paced and all this stuff. Now, and I'm not saying that this was a bad choice. Like, this might have actually been better than, like, that alternative. But I still just, I still do think this is not exactly the full 2006 TNA AJ. Um, but I, like I said, I agree with what both of you say um, about the match. I thought it was interesting, though, because... I remember um, Meltzer writing about the famous Dragon Gate Six Man, the one that happens the night after this at Super Card of, Super Card of Honor, um, and they, they said the big thing was protecting the Dragon Rana, which is the move that wins that match. Spoiler alert! Um, but they let AJ kick out of it here. I was pretty surprised to see someone kick out of the Dragon Rana. Just remembering what Meltzer wrote about how that entire match the next night was set up to protect that move. It's kind of interesting. I mean, maybe you know, maybe that's not actually the point of the next night's match. I don't know, but that's what that's what that's one thing that sticks out of my memory. So I didn't remember that AJ kicked out of it here, and I thought that was surprising. But but like a really good spot and a great pop, and I think a um, a really good match. You know, it was, it was a lot of fun. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder what Cornette thought of it at the time. Do you think he actually? Because he wasn't at this show. Do you think he actually even ever watched these matches? Probably not. Right. You know what? I think it's the quote I have reserved for the next show or two, but I'm going to mention it here. I forget exactly what it is. It's going to be in my notes somewhere. But I think there's a quote where Cornette actually like tells one of the newsletter guys that like Dragon Gate is the future of wrestling and that he's really impressed by them this week. <laughs> it's one of those mind-blowing – like he would not – if that's his true thoughts in 2022, he would not say that. That's yeah, well, well that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. Like, I, I don't – like it's just interesting to think like is he just lying about like – what he thinks wrestling shouldn't be like and like deep down he knows that like you can like things are advanced and you could do more high spots and you know faster paced and different kinds of selling like or like has his has his view of wrestling just like calcified to the point where he just doesn't accept this stuff anymore well there was that quote we read from like a newsletter that blew my mind from like it was either 2003 or 2004 where they said like some of the special K guys I think were like talking to Cornette and were like Cornette gave us great advice like you would think again just the idea of like Cornette talking to like random special K guys so that or you think it'd just be if you think of modern day Cornette you you would have a very particular idea of him just ranting at them but apparently like they had like very productive like no he was great with us maybe you know? maybe his good his maybe his good advice was don't do that don't do that anymore. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I think Cornette, you know, like a lot, I mean, I, I think he's probably kind of, his beliefs are kind of calcified in some not great ways. And I also, I think he's leaning into a lot of things because it's become kind of a thing he can sell to people. But this was the era, but I guess when it wasn't quite where he could still tell people that guys doing the flippy do's was actually neat and not going to ruin the business. The, the, a different time, Matt. Um, the one thing I, I'll just, I forgot to mention about the match. I love Genki Horiguchi's top rope, uh, foot stomp because he doesn't jump off the top turnbuckle. Like he just walks off of it and drops. And there's something about that that's different that somehow, even though he's coming, coming at it from less height, for some reason, just because no one else does it that way, it seems like more painful. Like he's taking a step off the buckle and then just falling straight down. There's something about that to me. I think was watch for that in this match. It's really, in my opinion, neato. But uh, that brings us to the third 
in the Challenge Series matches, the decisive match, who is better, Ring of Honor or Dragon Gate? It is Dragon Gate, because Blood Generation of Shima, Masato Yoshino, and Naruki Doi defeat Generation Next of Austin Aries, Jack Evans, and Roderick Strong in 1559, when Shima pins Evans after he hits the Schwine. Uh, Chad, you said, you know, you, you talked about the last match, talking about how these Dragon Gate matches kind of don't overstay their welcome. I guess you should get first crack at this, especially because, yeah, this is the longest one. And even this one comes in at a relatively tight, basically 16 minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I thought this match was great. Um, I, I think it, you know, it kind of starts out, uh, you know, fine, well enough. Uh, there is one uh, kind of uh, unfortunate botch where Jack Evans overshoots Arana and Doi just kind of flips with it and goes out of the ring. Um, it, it looked it looked kind of wild enough that it it's maybe if you kind of squint it kind of works, but it was definitely a botch. But um, but I, I the thing I like probably the most about this match. I think they established pretty early on that, you know, for all his spectacular uh, moves that he could pull off, Jack Evans is someone that when you're in kind of a trio setting, uh, you know, he could be taken advantage of and exploited. And he certainly targeted uh, in this match uh, by the Blood Generation contingents. And it leads to a very dramatic final probably four or five minutes that I thought was outstanding. Um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't remember offhand who won this match and I certainly didn't remember exactly what the finish was. And I was blown away by how kind of um, fluidly they went through the spots, went um, with the kind of cutoffs and the teases uh, every everything about this I thought was excellent. I love the Yoshino and Shima double um, kind of Van Terminator or whatever that they do from the corner. Um, there was just so many great spots ending with Shima getting the win that I thought was uh, appropriate. Uh, oh, also the uh, the Roderick Strong suplex into the four. 450 and then him kind of landing on his feet and getting into the super kick i i thought that was fabulous you know like as, as shoddy as ring of honors production can be around this time with missing stuff and the lighting and whatnot i thought the camera work here was really well done and that when they did that shot you couldn't see uh, that the wrestler, I can't even remember who it was, uh, either Doi or Yoshino, who uh, Evans was supposed to do the 450 on. You couldn't see that they were no longer like on the mat. Um, so it was a surprise when he landed on his feet. And then also you couldn't see Shima in frame until Evans does land on his feet. And then right in frame, Shima kills him with the super kick. Um, just a really exciting uh, excellent match, I thought. I, I thought this showcased the Dragon Gate style uh, as well as it could, and I thought I thought it really made Generation Next look like a bona fide faction too, because um, you had some great character work, like once uh, uh, pops in the corner, Church Strong, 
and you know uh, they're they're backing away like please don't chop me Roderick and then he absolutely lights them up with chops uh, so that was well done Aries had a good connection with the crowd here um, and then yeah Evans was the uh, you know like you you get the crowd still liking the Dragon Gates guys but Evans is certainly um sympathetic and kind of you're able to see a storyline within the move so overall i i, I thought this was great <laughs> I, I heap a lot of praise on this match it was very very enjoyable um matt you know this is a match you know that probably should get some more attention because you know i on on obviously obviously and unfortunately it gets completely overshadowed by a tag match that happens the very next night but it, it's, it's easy to forget I, I, part of me wonders matt do you ever wonder like i was wondering after watching this match like in a world where the dragon gate six mile on the next night doesn't happen does this match have i mean i don't think this match would have the same level of impact but is this kind of remembered as a as a big match probably not but it, it's an interesting kind of hypothetical i would say yeah, I oh sorry, my headset fell off for a second there. Um so sorry if there was weird noise. Um but I um it's like so if you want to like rate these three Dragon Gate challenge matches on the scale of like bringing the Dragon Gate style to America, I would say the Saito Yang match rates probably like on well, like one. Um and I'd say the uh, the Dragon Kid and um, Horiguchi versus Styles and Seidel match rates maybe like a six. I'd say this would be an eight, right? And the match the next night with uh, you know Blood Generation against Do Fixer is like a ten, or maybe mm-hmm. like maybe the real Dragon Gate lovers would probably say no, 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 it's not a full ten, maybe it's a nine, but it's higher than this. Um, but this is pretty close, I think, and it's it's interesting because like. Have Aries and Strong and Evans ever had a chance to do that? Was so I know Evans had been in Japan just like a month earlier. I mean, that's when he came and uh, Evans had, had and jet Strong left. had both had one tour each yeah. so far. Yeah, and Aries had not, right? Yeah, Aries had he he would later on that year, I think. But yeah, he was the one guy that had not yet gotten to go over there. Right, so it makes sense that this is the team that they picked to do this, and. It was like, you know, they didn't quite fully get the the full Dragon Gate level of, like, quickness and all that stuff. But, like, they came pretty damn close, I would say. Really admirable try. They did great for this, like, this was, like, a new thing. Like, you know, we'd never seen. Remember we talked about on Best in the World how uh, Evans and uh, Strong against the Briscoes was state-of-the-art? And I said, well, that's going to be actually obsolete in about a week. Um, because <laughs> this cause this is the new state-of-the-art. There were, there's never been an ROH match like this before. And, you know, they really just go hard and they go at it and like, just like boom, boom, boom. And like, yeah, there's like maybe a couple little things that, that Evans, uh, botched Rana, but that, that final segment is so impressive and, and, you know, so fast. And you could tell Generation X is having a lot of fun, just like trying to keep up with Blood Generation. And I, I guess, like I said, I don't think they quite get there, but like this, they get pretty damn close. Um, so I like that. They also there is that you know very brief segment where things do slow down, while Blood Generation get the heat on Evans, and like it's not just that they're fast paced moves. They have a ton of charisma and personality that helps them get over too. Um, like you said, probably more than Do Fixer. Um, so I think that helps a lot too. Like they're they're just a great trio, and yeah, this match was so much fun. Um, in some ways, probably because 
it involves, you know, wrestlers that I follow closely. And, you know, I probably, there's some things I like about this match even more than I like about the more famous match that happens the next night. Not that it's a better match, but, you know, there's just like little things that I might enjoy more, like just Jack Evans and Roderick Strong doing their Jack Evans and Roderick Strong stuff, you know, but, mm-hmm. um, but it's for what it is. It's, it's great. Like, I, I think this match is just a hell of a lot of fun. And, you know, having, you know, like, like I mentioned, this is, we're recording this right after the, uh, AEW had their trios, um, title tournament. So, you know, where you get to see, you know, a modern version that was heavily influenced by this style. And that, you know, you got Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay and like doing all this stuff. But this holds up pretty well, even after watching that stuff that happened more than 16 years later. So I think that speaks well of it. Yeah. Um, watching ring of honor show by show from the beginning, as we do, Matt, uh, I think sometimes you kind of fall into a groove of nostalgia where like, even like whenever I watch old wrestling, like Memphis wrestling or something, once you watch a lot of old wrestling, you, I find you kind of get good at, you calibrate your expectations for whatever you're watching. You kind of forget about everything you've seen since sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. And I kind of forgot watching, you know, every ring of honor, rewatching every ring of honor show that, you know, the style was a little bit slower than wrestling today. And it's weird. Like when I watched this match, all of a sudden I just got smacked in the face with modern wrestling. Like I started watching this match and I just thought also this thought popped in my head, like, Oh, there it is. Like, this is where it all starts. Like, this is where the wrestling we see today, it, all, all, so often, you know, this is where it starts really spreading is, is this match. Cause it was just like, it, it's not just a speed. It, it is a new speed, but it's a sheer density of moves. Like, in the final mist, there's just so much happening so quickly, it's hard to absorb it all. I some looked at online reviews after I wrote my notes, as I sometimes do, and I believe it was uh, Brad Garoon at 411Mania who wrote a review of the show. He remarked how it was hard to even recap it on. He's not the only person I said who like wrote something like that. And I feel like the one thing Dragon Gate brought is kind of like a changing philosophy of wrestling, and I would compare it to... Kind of like if you, all right, if you go to a fireworks show, a lot of times, at least in the fireworks shows I've been to, like you, most of the show is one firework at a time, and they're all spaced out, and you kind of appreciate, oh, that one's shaped like a heart, oh, that one's a neat color, blah blah blah, and at the very end of the show, you get they just fire like everything they have left at the same time, and it's just like this big giant mess that lights up the entire sky, it makes it seem like it's day for a second, and it's kind of amazing, but you can't really appreciate everything individually. It's just, and I feel like this is where wrestling kind of changed. Where up till now, even in Ring of Honor, there was this, even the fast paced matches, it was like keep it slow enough that like every move can be kind of absorbed on its own, and I feel like with matches like this Dragon Gate match, like. They're going so fast by the end and doing so many incredible things. You can't really kind of appreciate each move on its own because you're not getting a chance to breathe. But that's the point. The point is you're you're kind of entertained by just that you can't handle it all. It, 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 the overwhelmingness of it is part of like the, the the fun of it. And I feel like that's where wrestling really changes. And it starts with Dragon Gate bringing these kind of matches here. And I agree that I, I, I thought this was great. I would put this at like four stars flat. I think it, it does hold up well considering how influential the style has gotten. I thought Generation X, Matt, like you said, did really acquit them, acquit 
themselves well to this match. Aries, I thought even maybe took a little bit of a backseat here. I actually thought their control sequence was better than the blood generation control sequence, sequence, which was kind of slow. And I did think that the blood generation sequence, like very charismatic, but I thought it was funny how little effort they made to like distract the ref where when they would get in the ring to do triple teams, they literally just looked at the referee and pointed to the opposite corner. Like look over there. Like they made like no artistry about doing it. Just like, like, Hey, please look over here. I have, I have, I approve of that. Cause it means they've watched ring of honor and know that there are no disqualifications, even though they pretend there are. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the spots at the end, you guys like the, the double van terminator, the, the, all that stuff, just amazing. Uh, other thing that's crazy, it, maybe not crazy, but people, you know, whenever they saw like a new breakneck kind of cutting edge style, you'd hear so many people go, these guys are all going to be crippled. They're all going to be done in five years, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to know that all six of the guys, Dragon Gate guys that we've seen on the show, other than Yoshino, who only retired last year, all of them are still wrestling today. Yeah. Like and, all- and a lot of them are still doing very athletic type matches. Yeah, even though they're in their forties, like they Dragon Kid, all of them are still wrestling to this day. So yeah, and, yeah, and, I, and is, I do want and I do want to add one other thing because you mentioned, um, you know, that it was so fast it was hard to keep up with you know recapping the action. I will say this: this match was I was still able to write down like the moves that coming at the final sequence. Like they were very fast, but like I, the, the pace was enough that I could still do it for the um, when we do the Super Card of Honor match. I'm not even going to take notes. Like unless yeah. there's something I really <laughs> forgot, I'm just like this, I'm just telling you right now. Like I've seen that match enough. Like I'm not going to write down the moves. Like it's just like yeah. that. That's just like another level. So um yeah yeah great match. We're going on your way to see, and I would say yeah for me personally, it's either this or you know depending on how you view the Whitmer Jacobs match. I mean those are to me the two matches you need to see coming out of the show. Um. After the match, the crowd chants, that was awesome. You know, another big appreciation for this match. And then next, we get a five-minute video recapping the Samoa Joe-Christopher Daniels feud with a graphic telling us it's Ring of Honor's longest-running rivalry. And longest-running video, geez. Yeah, I appreciate the effort they clearly went here, but so much of this video was just random spots from all their Ring of Honor matches, and it went so long to the point where it felt like by the end you had rewatched every single match these two had in full. Um, it's, cr- it's, cra- it's crazy that nobody was like, hey, we could edit like the last two minutes of this and just completely chop it off and it would be better. Yeah, there, there's a natural endpoint to this video because there's an on-screen graphic that tells like it'll be settled this feud in a tri- on, at the triple shot with three different match types. But after that, they just keep showing random match clips for like another minute or two, and then it all ends with a graphic that says "Who is the better man?" Which I don't know seems like more of a moral question, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I will say. It is a weird way to end a feud. So for people that haven't been following through the years or don't remember, and I don't blame you, this was supposed to be – this whole feud was supposed to end like shows earlier at that Midwest double shot where it was supposed to be – I think Joe and Daniels would wrestle each other both nights. One would be like a 30-minute Ironman man, Iron man match. I think one was like no holds barred or something, some other gimmick. And then Joe got, I think, the staff. He had to postpone. And so now they've instead re-advertised that this triple shot will be the end. Except the way the triple shot is end, it's going to be a best of three. The first match tonight is a singles. Then it's a three-way. Then it's a four-way, which seems like the most anticlimactic way to end the feud. And more than that, what if someone does that isn't Daniels or Joe wins the three-way and the four-way? Like, 
or or wins one of them, and then you know you could end this feud one one and one could potentially if the booking of the matches happened a certain way. But, yes, yes, the booking is weird, but I will try not to fault the wrestlers for that. <laughs> but I presume why those matches fell in the order they did is this show could use a bigger match where the next two nights kind of don't, so you could have a three-way and a four-way. Also, but, also, also, they had the you know AJ and Yang as part of the Dragon Gate Challenge on this show. Yeah, so you 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 get some you know they, they have to shuffle things around, but it does create this weirdness where the the, the blow off match is really not the blow off match, but that brings us to that match, Matt. The main event of our show, Christopher Daniels with Allison Danger defeats Samoa Joe via pinball in sixteen fifty three after he hit three consecutive best moonsaults ever. So. Christopher Daniels finally gets to pin Samoa Joe in Ring of Honor in a singles match. He had a, in a, in a multi-man match, but never in a singles. And before we get to the match, um, Daniels' music plays for a while, and then it stops, and then it goes to Samoa Joe's The Champ Is Here bit, and then Jim, Daniels comes out opening his road to reveal the TNA X Division Championship, which I thought was a cute moment. And then Joe charges at him from the ring. The match starts with a pre-match brawl. But Matt, you know, we've seen a bunch of Samoa Joe and Christopher Daniels. How do you think this one stacks up? So I'm expecting to be the high vote on this match because I've just, I know I've liked this, these, the matches between these two guys more than you have in general, Trevor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I like this a lot. Like I, um, first of all, I like that it was different than their other matches, you know, which are more slow building matches. This match got on my good side immediately by Joe cutting off Daniel's entrance because I've said this a few times, that entrance is too fucking long. I thought that back when I would go to these shows and I especially think it when they feel the need to show the full entrance on the DVDs um, where he just like walks around to all four corners, gets on the gets on the uh, apron, you know, gets on the cor- you know, turnbuckles and gets the crowd to cheer on every side and it's just like takes his time. It's just like, come on, like get, get get this thing going so i was very happy that they started hot um which again is just different than a lot of roh matches i like when things are different and um and the crowd is really hot like for the brawl in the aisle they're pretty hot and split you know with the dueling chance during the match and the match really moves you know i think a lot of joe's roh matches that i haven't been as into have been slower and in 2003 he got over by doing pretty fast-paced matches and I like that this match is pretty fast paced. They, they don't really take their time. You know, there are a couple of times where they slow things down and put, you know, Joe puts on a chin lock at one point, but it's never for that long. You know, they, they go, they go to some of their bigger spots. It's not that long of a match. Um, um, you know, Joe, Joe does some pretty hard kicks. He gets that Boston crab and Daniels makes the rope and then they go to the floor pretty quick and Daniels hits two, a- two ole ole kicks. The crowd loves that. And, you know, they get, they eventually get back in the ring. Daniel uh, Joe goes for the muscle buster twice at the first time. Uh, Dan, uh, Daniels takes Joe over top rope. The second time he escapes out the back, um, and Joe gets the choke on a couple times. Uh, Daniels hits the iconoclasm, and both guys can't follow up. It's just like a real accelerated pace for these guys, which I actually think makes a lot of sense considering all the fast-paced action that we've seen tonight. Like, obviously, it's not as fast as the Dragon Gate matches or anywhere close, but it's much faster than their other matches. Um, and I really like the you know the final few minutes. It's not like it's a super dramatic finish, but, you know, when they, when they uh, get, you know, when a uh, Joe has Daniels in his series of signature holds, like where he does the, the, the cross face into the STF and all that stuff. There's like a dueling, please don't tap and tap chant. Um, 
you know, and, and it has a good storyline. I like that it's this is Daniel's match where it's like, okay, it's Daniel's turn to win. And he does. I like the way they finish it. Again, not super dramatic. There's really only one really big near fall, which is when Joe kicks out of the Angels' wings, so they don't overdo the near falls. But then right after that, Daniels hits three consecutive best moonsaults ever, like you said, gets the win. Um, so I don't know. I uh, the the only the only thing that made the win anything less than clean was that at one point when Joe was running the ropes, Danger grabbed Joe's leg. Um, which maybe wasn't necessary, but I guess it makes sense in the sense that Joe always had Daniel's number, so he needed that one little X factor to win. Um, I actually thought the finish could have been more dramatic, but then on the other, then I thought like actually it's kind of better that it wasn't. I, I just like that like they just like it was direct, it was straight ahead, it didn't really follow a formula, and I enjoyed it. It was it as good as like the Dragon Gate match that came before it? No, but I think they did a good job doing something different and exciting and i think it was a worthwhile main event chad what'd you think uh i i did like it uh, i thought it kind of topped out it very good i you know uh, this is kind of an interesting pairing for me and in that you know they've had a lot of matches and a lot of interactions with each other but the only match like offhand that i could remember like really really loving uh, is actually their uh, glory by honor match from 2003. Uh, that's the most memorable for that. So I did in some ways like the video package ahead of time uh, and kind of giving me a refresh. I, I think they should have just made this kind of the definitive feud ender uh, because it felt like the objective of this match was to get Christopher Daniels kind of a nice definitive win uh, when he kind of been certainly working from underneath throughout the feud and had uh, been playing second fiddle to Joe throughout. Um, so as the match, it, it did have a nice pace to it. Uh, Joe went for the muscle buster really early, uh, which surprised me. Um, and then I agree with what Matt said as he ran down the finishing stretch. Like it, it wasn't necessarily a dramatic finish per se with a lot of momentum shifts, uh, but, you know, for, for what they were trying to accomplish, I did appreciate that where, uh, you know, I mean, Joe does get the uh, kind of safe face by kicking out of the angel wings. But immediately Daniels hits three best moonsaults ever. And I did like that he didn't try to pin after the first one or even the second one. He He really drives it home that. You know, he was going to do this big grandiose uh, sequence to finally put Samoa Joe away, and he does. So, you know, not a, uh, you know, not a classic, but I, I did think it was a very good match and uh, kind of fit the theme of the night again of another match that didn't really overstay its welcome. So I, I appreciated that as well. It was uh, a pretty tidy match lengthwise as well. So uh, a very good effort overall. Oh, how the tables have turned, Chad. You know, you always, you've private joked a lot about the classic Trevor Dane, very good, not great, liking matches less than Matt. Uh, that's all sounded awful Trevor Dame-ish with this, 
very good, not great, not quite the level of Matt, but you know what? I agree with you, Chad, and now you know the feeling, but no, seriously. <laughs> see, I, um, I see, I thought you were setting up for like, oh, I like this match even more, but you just do the thing. <laughs> you just liked it the level that everyone would have expected you to like it. So yeah, I, I think yeah. this is a three I think this is a three and a half star match. I think this is uh-huh. good. Um I appreciate the parts that are different. I like the crowd brawl. I like the the definitive ending with the three BMEs. Um, I liked, you know, I feel like Joe's a lot of times like does a little bit more athletic stuff with Daniels than he does with other people. Like I was shocked that Joe took an iconoclasm, you know, I, he goes up big for the last, last rights. He goes up big. He does a great 2.999 kick out on the blue thunder bomb. He even goes over the top to the floor on a body scissors. I mean, from Daniels. So I appreciate that stuff. But most of this, ma- of this match is not those moments. It's a match where I feel like it's pretty darn good, but not great. Uh, you know, I've seen these guys have a lot of matches that level. Trevor, Trevor, say that again. Pretty darn good, but not great. Okay, just making sure. Um, Matt, I, I, I will say, I think Chad had a point I want to make, which is great, which is um, I feel like this is one of those feuds, kind of like I would say Joe versus Homicide, where just like I believe their match at the first do, at do or die is the best match they ever had and a gr- legitimately fantastic match. And they've had a lot of really good matches since then, but never topped it or met it. I think I agree with Chad. Like, I think the best match Joe and Daniels ever had was that Glory by Honor 2 match. And although we've seen them get lots of kicks in the can since, I think I think this one's probably the best one they've had, at least in Ring of Honor since then. I still wouldn't put this at glory by honor two level. Would you? Um, would I? No, no. But um, no. But I probably liked it a little bit more than you did. I, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I might even go like flat four on it. You know, three and three quarter, four stars. Like I really thought it was a very, very, very enjoyable main event. Yeah, and and then like you, I also wondered like why is Alice in Danger grabbing the leg when Daniels is a face, and uh, seemingly the point of this match was to give Daniels his big triumphant finally like win over Joe, but you know still an enjoyable match, and uh, the crowd was into it, and we go to the Observer because Dave Meltzer found a uh, Dave kind of a grumpy Gus on this show, so we'll go to the Observer. Dave wrote about this whole the booking of this match, not the match itself. Quote. I've written something like this before a few times, but TNA needs to make, take more of an interest in what its talent does on indie shows. WWE would never allow its top people to do jobs if they would allow them to work indies, which they really don't except for rare exceptions. But I know of instances, and the recent Punk appearance was one, where even an OVW guy wasn't allowed to do a job here if he appeared. If Joe didn't have his winning streak gimmick, it really wouldn't be a big deal. But they trumpet that streak and Joe is over, but the streak isn't over at all. I'm not saying doing a job on this show for Christopher Daniels is the reason why the streak hasn't been over for months, or even that few other jobs he's done elsewhere is the reason. But to me, you have to protect your storylines, or why do them? If it was up to me, I wouldn't allow Daniels or Joe to job in Ring of Honor at least until Joe's streak is up and Daniels no longer has the belt. If you're against each other at this point, you either change the booking or go the time limit. And even then, I wouldn't be hardline about it after, but I wouldn't allow it without office approval to make sure it doesn't contradict the storyline you say it's 500 fans in detroit which is worse because that's theoretically a key tna market but everyone hears about it at least as long as the tna fan base is so hardcore oriented i know just lost a few months back to jay lethal so this isn't the first time and if i was ring of honor the last thing i'd want is to be given ground rules on how to use talent so 
That was Dave's big takeaway, which basically that, and yeah, I guess that is something I, I failed to mention, which is Joe was going in TNA at this point as a, a, on an unbeaten streak, and Daniels was coming in with the X Division title. So, so, ha- so, had, so how did how did Daniels get the X Division title? He won it like in a three way where he didn't pin Joe, I guess. I, I, I guess so. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they are. Uh, you know, Dave kind of going a little, little wild on the booking, but you, you can see, I, I think sometimes Dave worries about this kind of stuff more than he should. As we go back to like the Kenta Joe match, I mean, the Joe Kobashi match where Dave in the lead up for months was like, Oh, you can't book Kenta. I mean, Kobashi versus Joe because Joe will have to lose and you can't have Joe lose in for ring of honor's sake. And it's like, Dave, that's not going to matter at all. And I feel like this is not – this is a little more valid than that, I believe. But I still feel like he's worrying a bit too much about a lot of this. But No, I, I mean I think – I think honestly it's way too much. Like I, I – I, it's an old-fashioned way of thinking. I'm, obviously wins and losses matter, but like they matter on the show of the of that promotion. You know what I mean? Like if something happens outside the promotion, I don't think – anyone takes it into account when they're talking about the wrestlers in that promotion. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think the crowd really cares at all. So I I think that, I don't know if he's actually gotten this, you know, um, sort of this mindset uh, um, out of, or this philosophy out of his head anymore, but I I don't think it was really relevant in 2006, and I definitely don't think it is now. Well, that brings us to the big angle after the match. Because after the match, Daniels is celebrating finally beating Joe in a singles match. After all these years, when Necro Butcher and Chris Hero jump back into the ring, Dave Prezak on commentary shouts, why do they have to ruin this moment? Hero gets on the mic and says it'll take a lot more than a European uppercut to keep him and Necro Butcher out of this ring. Ring of Honor can kiss his ass. Uh, Daniels wants to fight them, but Allison Danger begs him not to, to the point of tears. I mean, really selling this big that she, for whatever reason, does not want him involved in this. To the and point, to was, the point where Daniels is like, "What the hell is wrong with you, Allison?" Like she was like really getting intense. Yeah, like he listens to her, but he's like, "What the hell? Like, why are you freaking out this bad?" But that does get kind of Daniels out of the segment and out of this part of the feud. Um, Hero cuts a promo we can't really hear when an ailing Joe steps back in the ring. Uh, Hero charges at him. They brawl with Joe getting the advantage until Necro joins in. They put the boots, or I guess I should say the boots and bare feet in Necro's case to Joe until Whitmer comes back in the ring. Poor Whitmer again <laughs> having to come back out with the broken ankle. He gives them both hard chair shots to the head. Uh, Melter would write in the Observer that Necro had his head split open hard way from that chair shot. Um... Ring of Honor students try and drag Hero and Butcher to the back, but they fight heartily. Uh, Joe gives Necro a boot through the ropes as Necro's staying outside. I wrote my notes, Bobby Dempsey showing almost a full moon during this segment, because God bless Bobby Dempsey, but his pants were falling down as he was trying to hold these guys back. We get a brief BJ Whitmer chant. Uh, Joe gets on the mic and tells Necro if he wants to get his ass kicked, then they can fight one-on-one, and he'll knock him out again. Uh, Joe says this isn't the best night to give a bow cry because obviously he just lost. But he tells CCW they didn't get the attention of Ring of Honor's big guns I- until now, which seems like kind of a dick thing to say when Whitmer is standing right beside him and he's been involved in this every step of the way. But Joe says if you want a war, 
you go to war with Joe and BJ, and tonight Joe declares war on CZW. He calls John Zandig a fat, talentless piece of shit and asks him to come here too. He starts screaming, telling them that they to get, telling them to bring their glass tubes, their weed whackers, everything else, and he'll take them out with what God gave him. These fists, his wrestling ability, and the boys in the back. Huge crowd reaction to all of this. God Loud gave him God gave him his wrestling ability so he didn't like train to learn it. And God also gave him the boys in the back. Uh, Huge crowd reaction. Loud Ring of Honor (laughs) chant. Joe says ROH is the best in the world has to offer, and Ring of Honor is pro wrestling. I thought this was like a great Rally the Troops closing promo. This this promo was fucking awesome. Like, just like badass, like one of the highlights of the whole feud to me. And by the way, um, when BJ hit Necro with that chair, I I mean, I I think I saw he did split him open hard away, but also he broke the chair like the chair was shattered basically after that chair shot shit's crazy like that people was like it's bad that they were hitting each other that hard in the head with chairs yeah i mean this was a you know we talked about it a lot it felt like for a while every show the uh roh feud czw angle was getting bigger and better and more entertaining and then the last show or two you can't constantly top yourself every show so i think we said like the last show that was the first time they kind of didn't top themselves and you know this angle here you know you get this whole new dimension and that joe promo i would say is the best promo of the whole storyline so far so yeah yeah and like like we talked about Cornette, like you know how he was cutting these good promos and of course there were things about him we didn't like just we thought they were like the tone was a little off even though he's a great promo and he they were really good this is the sort of promo that you want to see like this this hit perfectly yeah and uh, we cut to – speaking of a, a, a big drop-off in promo quality, we cut to Lance Storm backstage somewhere. Storm says he's been watching Brian Danielson's title uh, defenses, and the more he sees of his ring, the more he thinks he wants to be a part of it, which it's one of those funny moments where this was obviously taped like weeks or months ago when the deal was made. But like the idea of like uh, Lance Storm promo where he acts like, oh, I'm kind of getting tempted when he's in, – in real life, his match happens two days later. Like, yeah, that's yeah, that's crazy. And by the way, that promo, it was either taped weeks or months ago, or it's possible also that it was all taped the night that he wrestled Danielson, like including the one at Best in the World. That's possible and, too. Because I feel is, like the background was the same as the one that Cornette was doing, and I know Cornette wasn't there in Detroit, but he was in Chicago, I think. Yeah, so, I was about to say that you, that would lend some theory because we go to the very last segment on the show, somewhere else, somewhere else backstage, somewhere except it looks just like like you said, Matt, where Lance Storm just was. Jim Cornette's on his phone. He's talking to a mystery person who was telling Jim, I guess we can't, we can only hear one side of the conversation, which is Jim's, but it sounds like someone's telling him who knocked out his tooth on a recent Ring of Honor show in that backstage melee with the CCW guys. Cornette promises there will be no repercussions for this person on the phone if they will tell Joe, I mean, Jim, who did it. He says he'll not mention their name. The person tells him who it is, and although we don't hear, Cornette says you're never going to see that son of a bitch again. And then we get our usual to be continued graphic. So another one of the great, I mean, there's nothing Gabe loved more than a Ring of Honor mystery. And when we have another mystery, the who knocked out Jim Cornette's tooth angle. So tune in next time to find out the shocking answer to that one, folks. And that brings us to the end of Dragon Gate Challenge, the start of the big triple shot. Uh, Chad. What do you think about this show? Obviously, you like you said, you've been listening to the show, our podcast, but have not been revisiting the show. So how did it feel to just kind of drop in on like mid-2006 Ring of Honor on a show that's, you know, not 
notable, but maybe people, you know, gets overshadowed by the two shows that follow it. Right. I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, what you guys say overall, because uh, to me, I, I had a very enjoyable time watching the show. Um, this show goes right up to the three hour kind of DVD time limit of most of their shows is about two hours and 58 minutes. And, um, I, it was, it was easy for me to watch through in, uh, in one setting. Um, no problem with that. So, so I, I thought it was a really good show. And to me, this is the type of show that kind of accentuates when a promotion is on a roll because if you have kind of a show this good, which, you know, is a very good, I would even classify borderline great show. Um, if you have a show this good, but it's not one of the memorable, more memorable shows from those promotions run, then, you know, the promotion as a whole is really kind of firing on all cylinders. Uh, uh, you know, that's something we're kind of going through now uh with WCW nineteen ninety six and they're having this kind of run of nitros and their pay per views uh, are kind of the same and even Fall Brawl nineteen ninety six is kinda of like that. Like that's that's a great pay per view that gets overshadowed by a lot of the other great pay per views surrounding it and a lot of the other nitros. And uh that's that's how I felt here. Like I, I thought it was a very good enjoyable show with two great matches, a couple of other very good matches and then nothing that was outright horrible. So a, a easy thumbs up show for me. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the show quite a bit. Um, Matt and I have talked about recently how, like, you know, a lot of times we, we, we praised a recent Ring of Honor show by, like, showing a lot of times with Ring of Honor in the era before this. Like, it was either a show that had the great match or, like, kind of the great angle or, like, the great kind of consistency of, of quality. And while there was maybe a few down points on the show, I think you get two great matches. You get some good matches. There's nothing that's really bad on this show at all. And you get, like, the great Joe promo. You get some angles building up, you know, the next couple shows. Like, to me, this was one of those shows, again, where I didn't feel like I really had to, like, I wasn't missing out on some aspect of Ring of Honor that I like. I got a lot of the different parts of it that I really liked in this show. So, yeah, this is it's hard to say that a show in the triple shot is a hidden gem, but you know, people sleep on the show compared to the other two and this is a g- pretty darn good show in its own right, I would say. Matt, do you uh agree with us or do you you going to go crazy now? You going to say, "You know what? You lied about how you felt about all the matches you just reviewed." Yeah, I mean like, I mean, you know, just listeners, like how many shows have we reviewed period where we just like one match after another, like, this is good. This is really good. This is really good. Like we are, we are firmly now in the ROH era where it's like, they just have like top to bottom high quality. And that wasn't always the case. Even recently, this is the probably considered the least essential show of the triple shot. And maybe even of the whole milestone series, but of in terms of like wrestling quality and a good crowd, like this is pretty high up there on shows we review. This is a damn good show, and you know I it, I feel like they just think ROH just keeps getting better at, at this at this era. Like they like you know we remember this time in two thousand six is a really great time in ROH, and I feel like they're. The these shows where when we go back and watch, it's like it's living up to the reputation. Yeah, it's they really have like turned a corner in terms of figuring out how to put on these just like barn burner shows and for like you said this is like kind of like the b show of the milestone series and it's fucking great um in 
for what it is anyway. You know, not, maybe like no big title matches. No, you know, the, I'd say the most dramatic moment um, in terms of like historically is the Jimmy Jacobs match, but and you know that was an accident. But just like I mean, ROH is a show supposed to be about wrestling quality, and this this show had it. So who can complain? Yeah, and uh, that brings us to the end of the show. So Chad. Um, chance to plug things i know i mentioned both your 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 old podcast and your current podcast up top but anything you want to plug social media whatever this is your chance sir sure uh doing the wrestling war zone podcast on the uh, north south podcast uh connection podcast feed uh, uh the show after uh this show drops that me and justin will be reviewing as halloween havoc 1996 uh which is uh it's always fun to do the wcw pay-per-views uh knowing my previous podcast and where the big boys play so it does feel (laughs) like a little bit of a continuation of that um and and the good thing about that show too now is uh wwf had been kind of the drizzling shits i'd say for the last (laughs) couple months um and it finally feels like they're starting to turn the corner with brett returning uh, Stone Cold, you know, becoming Stone Cold in earnest. And, uh, so, so it's exciting where we should be in a bit of a stretch here where both shows are pretty high quality. Uh, and, and, ha- and Halloween, year, so. and Halloween Havoc 96 is the show where Hulk Hogan wears a ridiculous wig, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, he, uh, I think it's like, I don't, I, I actually haven't watched that for our prep while we're recording Tuesday. So I got to get on it. But, um, he, he he's filming three ninjas, High Noon and Mega Mountain. So on the on the go on the go home uh, promo, he's on set, and I, I I don't know if he had to cut his hair for that or if it's some wig situation. So I'm I'm interested to see, but his uh, haircut for the go home promo was pretty wild. So uh, <laughs> I I, b- I believe that's what he wears into the match. So uh, it's it's quite a unique look, we should say. Yes. Uh, the sh- the show is uh, like the sh- whole episode has been great, but if nothing else, e- even if the show had been terrible, it was worth it just to hear Chad Campbell say three ninjas high noon at make a mouth. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, again, I just want to give one more plug personally. Like, I mean, Chad between where the big boys play and you know the wrestling war zone, like he's covering you know all the wrestling from WCW and WWE or a lot of it from the eighties to the nineties. And, you know, a lot of people do it, but to me, he's one of my favorite people to listen to talk about that stuff. So if you have not heard him talk, you know, you are in for a treat to have such a backlog. I envy you. And to me, like Chad is just, I would say he's one of my comfort listens. Like if I'm sick or something, I will listen to an old show of his because like, there's just something that is comforting. I don't know if it's the voice I don't know if it's just the nice, easygoing demeanor. I don't know if he's just because I like his takes. Just good stuff. So, again, emphatic plug here. I agree. I agree. And, and you know, again, thank you so much, Chad, for being on. Like, this was like – like, honestly, it's it's kind of crazy to say, like, like a dream come true because, like, you were, like, probably the biggest influence on the show existing. And also, like, we were didn't realize this was going to happen, but, you know – really one of the most important people in terms of anyone even hearing about it so like trevor like how many twitter followers did you even have in march of 2017 i did not have that many i yeah. I, it, it, it has grown like a fungus in as <laughs> a positive influence in my life uh but 
But um, yeah, again, great stuff. And so if you want to get in contact with us, it's at Trevor Dame, at Mayor MGF. Um, through the years, that's THRLH for our email at gmail.com. And yeah, again, and also the pl- progress, the only plugs for, I don't check that thread much these days, but we have a couple listeners that write some very long, insightful posts about their thoughts on the shows sometimes. And, um, again, I, I say even there, go to the matchless things and reach, like, the, there are some great debates of old matches, or not even debates, just like, I love looking up that stuff. That's one of my favorite places to, like, read reviews about old matches when I'm rewatching old stuff. So, if, if, if there's nothing else you gain from the show, it's just, there's a bounty of content you should listen to, and I hate referring to it as content. But anyway, next time on the show, we get into maybe one of the biggest shows we will ever cover, and that is Supercard of Honor, the Dragon Gate six man everyone talks about, Jack um, Roddy versus Danielson one more time, whole bunch of other stuff. That show's over four hours long. I am frightened. We might have a guest. That sh- I hope that podcast can be under eighteen hours. I am scared. Yeah, we, we might not. We might. We might not be back. We might not be back that quick. But we'll try. Um, yeah, but yes. Uh, but yeah, it might be a few with a while. But yes. Until but but un- time, until next time, have a Naruki doi. Have a great time.